cloudy skies cannot change how I'm feeling about today, about recording this, about this list we are going to do. Number 67 through 34 on our top 100 movies of the 2010s. Super exciting. PJ Campbell, how's the fallout been so far? You know, we had the, the first episode go out a couple of days ago. Have Has there been a lot of great energy online in response to this episode, or is it kind of quiet on the movie house front? No, I think people seem excited, man. I mean, we haven't gotten a lot of gruff or pushback yet. Like, I keep kind of waiting for it. I thought for sure that out the gate with number 100, the John Carter thing was going to have people throwing rocks at us, but yeah. people kind of got on board with it. So, hey, who, who am I to judge? The one person who approached me about our inclusion of John Carter just did it to say he had not seen John Carter, which in a weird way also makes the most sense in the world because that was the thing I was so self-conscious about. It's like, okay, so we put the movie that just nobody cares about at all on number 100. Yep. But I'm glad we did because we got to give love to a movie that just goes overlooked way too often. That's true. That's one of the reasons why we do what we do. The other pushback that I got, it was just like verbatim the stuff that I had made fun of on the episode. Oh, so yeah. the the DM, oh my god, Interstellar's off the list, but John Carter made it. Like I verbally made fun of it's you guys are so predictable. <laughs> you guys are so fucking predictable. I know you I said it last week, I think. I know you like the back of my hand. I can predict your move before you even make it. It's crazy. But it's all good. It's it's all in good fun and uh, I hope everybody's enjoying this so far. Be sure, by the way, to go to letterboxd.com slash moviehouse. Now that this episode is out, that means you can see 100 through 67, because I'm always going to update that list. You'll be one behind always. That just maximizes the amount of people that listen to that episode, but we want to go on and, and get the list up for the people who are following along in real time. Um, and just real quick, before we dive into this, um, I just want to say, again, thank you so much to our listenership, the people that do communicate with us throughout the week, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, what have you. This week, we officially left Podcast One. The Schmoes know, well, I say we left the Schmoes know branding behind, but it's still a parenthetical in the title, just for the sake of conversion. But uh, Schmoes know that era is sort of behind us, and Movie House is now... Uh, on its own thing, it's on Anchor, and it's on Spotify. It's crazy. That's the, that's the kind of stuff I'm most excited about, it's, it being on Spotify, because that's the platform I use. But I'm also excited to have more freedom, because Podcast One didn't allow me to do certain things, and my partnership didn't allow me to do certain things. So, I don't know. It's, it's just like a huge relief off of my shoulders. So, it's a different kind of energy going into this episode specifically. Well, and I think that... One, you guys have been so cool to, like, even go on this journey with us. Like, we've talked about it a lot lately because the change has been going on kind of the last couple of weeks. But I think that people seem, like, really excited that it moved to Spotify for the first time. And that is great news because that opens up our listener base more because not everyone uses Apple or Podcast One and things like that. You know, it's funny looking into it a little bit more. Like, when I saw the transfer, Anchor can show me what platforms the podcast feed is on mm -hmm. right now movie house is on like eight platforms so that includes places like um I'm trying to think of what they all are there's uh there's some i haven't even used stitchers before. probably one. stitchers actually not oh St wow stitchers weird they're kind of like podcast one it's kind of like another wall it's weird got it um i guess technically i could put it on there but it doesn't 
do it on its own. But there's a few other platforms like, um, not Player FM, but Overcast, Stitchbox, I think is something. Yeah, that's going Stitchbox. On, something is, like that. Yeah. It goes out on all these different platforms. Spotify, of course, that was the first place it went to. And before it had done all that, it was only on one platform, which was Apple yep. for Podcast One. So we're on uh, seven new platforms. And, uh, I don't know. I get excited about the things like I can customize all the cover artwork and I just think it looks really neat and pretty and stuff, especially on Spotify. So I don't know. I just like that kind of stuff. I'm a nerd in that way. I mean, it's as you should, because I think one of the things that I've always thought was very cool with you is you put a lot of time and effort into the stuff you're doing with the cover art and things like that. Now you actually get a chance to do all of that. Um, and it's to your benefit. And again, I think it's just better that we've opened up so many avenues for new listeners. And 100. that means that if you guys are listening to this and you know people who might like the show, now you have a chance to share it with them in different avenues. So, you know, share the links. Continue to share where we are. Spotify, Apple, wherever podcasts are sold at this point, we should be there. I have no idea really how to gauge how involved our listenership is, though, other than the people that, like Jeremy Gray, right. who talks to us all the time, uh, Perry Martin, there's a few other people that I know listen uh, listen um, all the time, but I don't know. I might throw it out there. We might make some t-shirts. Well, I shouldn't say make. I, we might just do like a tea public thing, because I don't know if we have the numbers to support me just kind of getting a whole inventory made and shipping that out. I would honestly prefer to do that if I knew that I could, just because... We make more bags, mm. but uh, but we'll see. It's really easy to upload a design to uh, T Public. So if you guys are interested in shirts or whatever merchandise T Public can make, then maybe we will we will do that. I love it. I think it'd be great if we had shirts. It'd be really cool. Just saying. Um, number sixty six through thirty four is is today. And uh, I think you're going to start us off here first. Let's just get right into it. We don't have to talk about all the mumbo jumbo uh, that we did last week with how we created the list, just because they've heard that already. And, and you've uh, heard it twice, probably at this point, if you've that's listened right. through. <laughs> Technically, so, so I mean, if you don't know how we got to the list, go back to either the honorable mentions episode or our 100 through 67 because it's there. We talk about it. I will preface this real quick before we get started. I have not seen one, two, I think three of the movies on this list. Have you seen all of them? Yeah, on this one I've seen all okay. of them. It was four, I think, and I watched one yes. in prep for this. One that I'm very excited that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, without well, further ado, let's do get this. into it. Number 66, uh, number 66 is a movie that came... Kind of by surprise, I don't think any of us were really expecting it when it came out. Um, it was basically sold as an indie comedy, and we didn't know a ton about it, and it took the world by storm when it opened, and that was The Big Sick. Uh, this is a film that I have watched too many times to count at this point, and it's just obviously one of the best comedies of the decade, because you and I have always talked about the fact that comedy has been kind of very on the miss side for the most part of the 2010s. Right. But more than that, like it ended up being like this really soulful, heartfelt film too. And I think that's what pushed it over the top. It wasn't just that it was funny. It was that it was this true story about Kamal and his wife and how they met and fell in love. And like the kind of scariness that came with that. 
um, when she got sick. And it's just a really excellent film that I watch way too frequently in the best way because I just really enjoy it. What are your thoughts on The Big Sick? I am shocked, now that I'm thinking about this, I'm shocked how few movies I feel like came out that were actually like driven by a stand-up comedian. Right. Because it's been entirely driven by like Seth Rogen and his crew, or Will Ferrell and his crew. But stand-up comedians, Melissa McCarthy, yeah. The stand-up comedian sort of genre led film uh, has not been prominent at all. And I, I don't even know that I necessarily want it like i'm trying to i'm running through like we had a bo burnham but he wasn't he was behind the camera he wasn't on screen i'm trying to think of other stand-up comedians who kind of came out and did something it just it just didn't really happen i'm kind of shocked that zoe kazan who plays his wife in the movie kind of didn't really take off at least in front of my eyes because i thought she did just such a wonderful job or maybe she's just in a bunch of things that i haven't seen okay perfect like the deuce um, I, I haven't watched the deuce either have I, but, uh, but anyway, I, I was so taken and, and so charmed by, uh, everything that this movie is. I, I really did. There's a lot of, uh, lines that stick out with me. One of my favorite jokes is the nine 11 joke. I think it is so brilliant mm-hmm. when, when he tells Ray Romano, yeah, we lost a lot of our best guys that day. Brilliant joke. There's another line that really stuck out with me. I think about this a lot. Um, when he takes his, uh, blind date back home and he's kind of confronted with the idea that he he just never let her get past this wall he has up. And she's disappointed because she liked him and, and thought things were going well. And he kind of just looks at her in the most real, in this super real intimate moment, and says something along the lines of, do you ever wish you could just relax yes uh in in terms of like meeting somebody and just being able to relax and and that's how he knew that he couldn't be with this particular person is because he his mind was elsewhere and i i don't know i just thought that was such a striking line i I remember being very taken with that and i I think that kind of goes back to what i said about this being driven by a stand-up comedian because usually when a stand-up comedian is given this type of vessel there is a lot of heart to it it's not for the most part, usually just fluffy nonsense. Sometimes it is, but that usually comes from like comedic actors more than it does stand-up comics. So it's a very thoughtful, funny movie. I think uh, we haven't even mentioned, or maybe you did a little bit, the, the cultural uh, aspects to it. Mm-hmm. The fact that he is Pakistani and he can bring this to the table. and We and, actually see a lot of that in the movie, too. And we yeah. don't see stuff like that explored very often. And you know what's funny? You bring up lines in the movie that kind of really make me think about things and it's such a weird thing but it's a joke that Brandon and I latch onto all the time Brandon Hanna of the Schmodown and it's when Ray Romano's talking about the fact that he's like you know what they hate everything on the internet you go on the internet they hate Forrest Gump right best movie ever and there's so much truth to that like that's, that's kind of what the internet has become in a nutshell i think that it, it says a lot about us as people in the movie i think it says a lot about our current culture in the movie it's just there's so much to unpack but it's just also so warm and you feel so good when you watch it right this movie reminds me a lot of the work that's done on like master or none and haha make your jokes because i'm obviously you know, comparing the the two brown led things, but no, it really reminds me of that because that's another point to make is I think maybe stand up comedians go to television a lot, and they can and, and Aziz Ansari and what he did with Master of None, he was able to tell 
uh, a story in a similar fashion uh, through his unique prism and his love life and also his comedy, and it was very similar. So that was the kind of stuff that, that, that came out, but it was more so on, on television. But anyway, The Big Sick is uh, wonderful, and it's on Prime Video right now, right? Cause yes. Because it's an Amazon film. So, uh, so anyway, Big Sick is uh, fantastic, and that is our number 66 film. Love it. Number 65 is... Uh, it's a last-minute edition because, I don't know if you remember this, but we had finished the list entirely. Yes. We were watching Dope, and I don't know. I don't remember exactly how it came about. I think because you and I started talking about the lead in this, for whatever reason, it popped I don't up. Know. I don't remember, but regardless, I remembered that for whatever reason, we did not include Kingsman the Secret Service in our discussion and i knew that it just had to absolutely be on this list so i don't i couldn't even tell you how it happened guys but i'm glad that i remembered last minute i can't remember oh so we replaced a a movie that was a part of another franchise that's already represented uh on this list i just went ahead and did a quick swap so that's how i factored that in but anyway the kingsman the secret service it just kind of blew the roof off when I saw it. Um, I, it was a very memorable theatrical experience for me because I was enjoying the hell out of it. And I was in a theater in my local hometown, and behind me, I was with a group of friends, and behind me was their preacher, their Baptist preacher, and his wife, who I worked with. So basically three very uptight, conservative people who probably thought that movie was going to be one thing. It ended up being something completely different. ended up being a movie where a woman begs for anal sex at the very end from from Exy. Like, I just thought that was so funny. And that made the movie that much more uh, entertaining to me, just because I, I don't know. Anyway... But uh, it was also funny because the whole Kentucky stuff gets brought up in that movie. And right. I, I couldn't help but laugh at all that. But anyway, uh, those are like just maybe barely on the top 100 things that are great about this movie because uh, <laughs> there's so many. I think the the two obviously are Matthew Vaughn and uh, Taron Edgerton, who Matthew Vaughn had already sort of solidified with another movie that he was one of my favorite directors. But Taron Edgerton just out of nowhere kicking you in the nuts with how incredible he is not only as an actor but just as a leading man how how well he fit into this whole matthew vaughn but also action spy prism i mean it was just i don't know a lot of um a lot of great things just sort of fell into place unexpectedly well and not just those two i also have to give props to colin firth because he kind of classes up a film that could over otherwise go sort of overlooked i mean him being in it adds an air of class to the movie, as weird as that sounds, but you need it because this is a film that is a love letter to the Bond franchise in a big way, but like Bond if it was created now. Right. And the action sequences in this movie are some of the most exciting of the decade period. That first sequence when Colin Farrell or Colin Firth walks in and he does the manners maketh man and yeah. they're in the bar is so wildly entertaining and so fucking cool because of how it's staged. Like yeah. it's hard not to fall in love with the movie from that point on, but it was really Taron at the end of the day who made the movie work because he came out the gate like a fucking star. And it's so great for that. Also, 
I love Samuel L. Jackson in this. I love the it's idea true. of a villain who is actually like really adverse to violence, but he needs violence as the answer. So he knows what he's doing. Ne- in his opinion, needs to be done, but he also can't watch what he's doing because he's too squeamish to do it. Mm. There's something really interesting about that to me, and I don't know what it is. It just makes Valentine a very interesting villain. Using cell phones to take over is really, really cool. Of course, there's a lot to say about the church sequence in and of itself as a one-shot sequence. Um, So much to love about this movie. If you haven't seen it, you really owe it to yourself, too. Or if you haven't revisited it in a while, now's a perfect time to do it. It also should get some credit. I think it's helped sort of revitalize. and I think it's definitely contributed to the spy genre because where we were in the winter of uh, 2014 when this came out, it was kind of like right in the middle of, of Bond being, you know, it was like right after Skyfall and Spectre, and then it was like we were in the middle of uh, Ghost Protocol as well. Right. And it was... It was uh, interesting to be like, well, Kingsman might actually be the best spy movie of the past like several years, even though it went up against all of these prestigious spy franchises. So I think there's something to be said for that, too. It's unfortunate that the, the second one isn't that great, but we're obviously super excited, as, as you may know from our top anticipated list, for uh, The King's Man that comes out later this year. Uh, there's just something to be said that Kingsman is a, just a great spy movie property as well. Yeah, definitely. And it came from... You know, it comes from a comic book as well, but, I mean, it's pretty much its own take on it. So, it really is just the idea of Matthew Vaughn at that point to me. Right. Like, it just pops off in the best way, and I love it very, very much. Which leads into our number 64, another film that I love very, very much, also starring Taron Egerton. This being Eddie the Eagle, this was one of those... Just kind of crazy true life stories that someone decided needed to be told as a movie, and that person being Matthew Vaughn, who produced the film. And what a great, great movie. Hugh Jackman and Taron Edgerton are really fantastic together in a film about this kid who really just wants to see his dream of jumping in the Olympics on skis. Like, he's going to see it through no matter what. And he's a horrible athlete, he has no skill. And yet, he is so determined to do it. It's about the power of perseverance and the human spirit. And it ends up being not only one of like the warmest and fuzziest films you could think of, but it's really funny to boot. Like, have, just so good. Had you heard of uh, this gentleman before the movie came out? No, I hadn't. And you know what's funny? Is that apparently the year that he is in the Olympics is the same year that the Jamaican bobsled team from Cool Runnings oh, really? is in the Olympics. So these two <laughs> stories are happening. That Man, that year for the Olympics, I mean, what great movie content came out of that thing. I know. Just, <laughs> isn't that kind of funny, though? Is, like, this where, wow. is this where the Taron Edgerton being Wolverine sort of comes from? Probably. Just because he was up against Hugh Jackman. By the way, you'd be shocked that the uh, Metacritic score for this is a 54%. Are you kidding isn't that crazy? That's let me, insane. Let to me, me check Rotten Tomatoes real quick, and because the the reason why I love Eddie the Eagles, not only you know you you brought up a lot of great points, the idea that it's a tale for the human spirit, and it's also just maybe top five sports movies that came out in this decade. Absolutely. It's, see, it's got like an eighty two on Rotten Tomatoes. That's hilarious. I don't know how that kind of stuff. What a weird thing. But regardless of that, it's number 64 or whatever it is on our list. So yeah, take that. Goddamn right. Um, yeah, Taron Edgerton and Hugh Jackman, two of my favorite actors 
in this movie, directed by Dexter Fletcher. Of course, who worked with him later on Rocketman. That's right. So, I like that, too. The, the idea that sort of this unsuspecting... I don't know, we talk a lot about the, the pairings, like Christopher Nolan, and like what he does with a lot of his actors, like Leo DiCaprio and Scorsese. But like, there's also a lot of like these smaller like pockets of groups yeah. that, you know, Marv, Matthew Vaughn's production company, you know, works with all these same people. And uh, I don't know, that's kind of the stuff that we don't talk about enough, but it always, I don't know, it it helps me appreciate a movie or, or want to see a movie when these like smaller, unsuspecting people get together and kind of make stuff. It gets me excited in that way. So this kind of group, if you weren't watching out for them before, I think you definitely should be now. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And the the pocket facet of like directing and actor duos is a really great point that you bring up. Um, it's one that I always get excited about. I think that's why when certain projects get announced. If I've seen them work together before, even in a smaller fashion, I always get excited about that idea. It was like when they announced Creed, you know, the idea of Michael B. Jordan reteaming with Ryan Coogler. And then, of course, with Black Panther, the same thing. That's right. Because we had seen them work together on Fruitvale Station. You get excited about that thought. So, of course, we had to. You're absolutely right. All right. So, continuing, another spy movie, which was just an absolute kick in the nuts for me personally, Number 63 is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Now, <laughs> on a whim, I might be <laughs> I might be encouraged to put like every single Mission Impossible movie post MI3 just cuz I wasn't in this decade on on this list, but we did have to make some adjustments and we wanted to make sure that other movies were represented and not just every Mission Impossible movie. But Rogue Nation, I believe is the first one that we've discussed so far, it definitely is. And I think the reason why I was so taken by this movie was for one the direction of Christopher McQuarrie who going into this movie I wasn't quite familiar with as a director I was gonna say what did he direct uh, up until this point before this what was it the way of the gun I think oh and then just Jack Reacher yeah and Jack Reacher before this so uh, talk about you know pairings and I'm sure we'll We'll conclude with that later on uh, somewhere else. But uh, Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise being these longtime collaborators, the fact that this was their second movie uh, that, that he had directed for Tom Cruise, and the fact that you get the addition of Rebecca Ferguson, who I had never seen before, and she just kind of blew me away. I mean, you want to talk about like amazing, strong heroines yep. in franchises. We had the whole uh, Furiosa the Fury Rota. What was I doing that? Yeah, day? the Fury Rota, I believe. The Fury Rota uh, of it all. I mean, talk about Rebecca Ferguson and uh, the addition of Ilsa Faust to to Mission Impossible because that that's the thing that had been going on up until this point. A lot of the uh, female actors, actually, a lot of the actors in these movies in general are disposable. They are they're only good for a one time use for the most part, and that's something that we've seen in this new era. And not only the continuity from the older characters, but keeping some of the new the new characters in and so the fact that we added rebecca ferguson to this movie and still get to see her up until this point um it's very special and it's very telling uh, about how successful and how how lasting this franchise is not just that i mean the inclusion of alec baldwin um taking over as alan hunley who is kind of going after the imf at the beginning of the film because he sees them as dangerous was a really kind of interesting little pot to put everything into because they're already dealing with the anti-IMF, if you right. will, in the film. And then to have 
the government standing against them too, having this idea that Ethan has to go completely rogue and go against basically everyone who could possibly have his back is a really interesting idea that we, I mean, I guess technically we kind of do that in every film, but it felt so front and center in this one, especially him working with Ilsa and like the situation that he's kind of putting everyone in. And Sean Harris, man, he is so great in this film as Solomon Lane. Um, That was one of the things that I really liked was he is such a different villain. And it, I like that one of the things that the movie does very well is it gets bigger until it doesn't. And the finale is so cool because it's right. tiny. It's like, the, the pressure triggers at the cafe, right? Yeah. And there's something about the idea that a big blockbuster film like this actually ends on like such a methodically plotted out yeah. ending versus a big action set piece. And that's kind of the Hitchcock nature of all of this because the film – is heavily influenced by Hitchcock. Like you don't have to look farther than that whole opera house sequence just to see how inspired by Hitchcock he was. Like there's something about that sequence in really that really pops off. It's just really, really awesome. And it showed that Christopher McQuarrie was really here as a director. Like, you know, the way of the gun and Jack Reacher could have been like easy to kind of just write off. But then rogue nation is like, no, I know what I'm doing. I'm a great filmmaker. And I'm here to stay. And I love that. It's a great point. This movie's way more methodical than I think uh, Fallout is. Even mm-hmm. though Fallout has strengths that I think Mission Impossible Rogue Nation doesn't have. But it, it definitely is. I'm glad you brought up that point. Um, one is a very story-driven film. One is a very action-heavy film. And that, that's not... Right. They both have action, but one uses one as its catalyst if you will right i remember being very excited about this going in just because they were introducing the syndicate finally which is something they pulled from the tv show and i I didn't even really have an impression of that i was just like oh that's kind of cool and again kind of going back to this the spy renaissance that we're in right now it was the better james bond movie that year because the the syndicate can be compared to uh, Spectre. specter in that way and it was just like man this this franchise it's it's something else and it's still it's still lasting we're hearing casting reports for the for the next two now and i don't know man rogue nation more so than ghost protocol like i i love mission impossible 3 a lot because of the jj abrams of it all ghost protocol's kind of the one that i just kind of forget i don't forget about it it's just the one that as time goes on is less lasting for me personally but rogue nation was uh, an absolute kick in the nuts in the first time, probably since MI3, that I was like, yes! And I, I think, like, just... Remember those trailers with him on the side of the plane? Like, we knew what we were getting <laughs> yeah. into, and it was like, holy shit. We've, we've taken Tom Cruise for granted for so long sometimes. Like, we forget that he's really in this to do big, stupid shit like that in the best way. He wants to really wow the audience, and he's one of the few actors left who wants to wow the audience in that way, and... I think him teaming with Christopher McQuarrie has really taken that to the next level because Ghost Protocol is very, very good. It was the great first step of what Mission Impossible could be now, but I think that there's just so much more to say about these last two yeah. than there is about Ghost Protocol. Yeah, you can't have Rogue Nation without Ghost Protocol. Yeah. But it's also just the, the idea that your next movie can always be better and uh, build off of it in that, that proper way, so... I the, the moon pole sequence, the underwater sequence, oh, God, where he'll so breath, uh, the motorcycle chase, all that stuff. I, I just think it's like super memorable. I think they're it's a little bit more memorable than a lot of the stuff that's in even uh, uh, Fallout. 
No, definitely. I I think that, in my opinion, this film is the best culmination of everything the series is in one movie. Like, I think it really pulls from all the previous movies and finds all their greatest strengths and plays to them and becomes the best encapsulation of it. Which leads us to our number 62. And this is another film that is based on a graphic novel, but it's not what you might think it would be because it was a film that totally surprised all of us when it came out, led by Chris Evans, and that is Snowpiercer. What a great film. This movie took all of us by storm. And remember all the behind-the-scenes battles just for this movie to come out? The Weinstein's trying to cut it up? No. Okay, so (laughs) there was like this whole thing leading up to it. This movie, for a long time... I was already hyped on just because it was like Bong Joon-ho doing it and this idea of him doing something like this, a comic book film, a different type. But then all those behind-the-scenes battles made this a must-see because it was like he was fighting with the wine scenes for his version of the film and all this stuff. And it comes out and ends up being this like beautiful and heartbreaking and eye-opening to like comic film that it has to do with class warfare on a train and like what the world would look like if everyone was living on a train that was never stopping because right. the world had you know gone to shit it's fascinating yeah i love this movie you have to give a lot of credit to the source material but when i heard about this film and heard what it was all about i just thought that that story was so rich it it, it still is so this is one of those movies and i talked about it on the last episode. This is one of those movies that Slash Film was freaking out about. I don't remember the drama per se, but I just remember the the appeal once the thing had been seen mm-hmm. by festivals and things like that. And Slash Film was going on and on about it. And I, I, I knew nothing other than it was Chris Evans led and it was, uh, uh, it was a foreign film. And I think that I was just like in my bed on my laptop on a whim... I, I think I illegally downloaded a torrent for it just because I was like so curious about it, even though I couldn't access it. And I just sat there on my laptop, which is not ideal, had it on my laptop, and I was glued to that screen yeah, from man. beginning to end. And this is just like 100% a Ryan Snelling movie because not only is it so cool, it's so visually striking. I compare it a lot to like a 300. Sure, definitely. I because can see that. Because it's uh, the slow-mo action beats and stuff like that. Well, the slow-mo action beats, but it's also just like a journeyman. It's like an absolute war from beginning to end yeah. for this individual character. I, I just related a lot to that. I think it's the superior superior film. I do, too. Uh, just when you have to consider... It, it's not a green screen CGI fest per se, but it's literally just about how do you, how do you make this feel contained, but as the story progresses, make it feel completely different as you go through. Yeah. So you see that visually, uh, as you proceed through the train, you make every car different, you make, uh, its surroundings and the people inside each car different. And just that visual storytelling, it's like a video game. Totally. It really is. Well, and some of these action sequences are like next level cool. The yes. the, the one with the flashing strobe lights as things are going on yeah. is wild. Uh, Tilda Swinton is awesome in this. Yes, she is. Like, I love her just about every time she's in anything, but there's something about her when she's a villain that is just so cool, and I love her in this movie. Ed Harris's cameo towards the end of the film. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. Um, he's really great when he pops up. Um, just a really great movie, man. That steak, 
And that ending, um, I I won't say what, but it has stuck with me for a long time. I frequently think about the ending and like, what does that mean for all of them? There's just something very interesting about it in how it all kind of culminates in the end. Are you excited at all about the TV show? Not really. I would love to be, but the behind the scenes stuff on that one, unlike this one, has me more nervous than excited. So isn't that unfortunate? Yeah. I mean, look, the idea of a Snowpiercer TV show isn't the worst, but it's moved around a lot. It's shaken up a lot behind the scenes. It's lost a lot of people along the way. Like, I don't know, man. And it's already been renewed for season two, and it hasn't even premiered yet. Yeah. I, I, I'm i just not as taken with the cast either. I don't think it's as cool. We have David Diggs from uh, Blind Spotting, and we have, of course, Jennifer Connelly. But, uh, day, I don't one. Know. I'm not... day one. Jen day Connelly. one. Jen Connelly. Is that your day one? She's great. I love Jen Connelly. I mean, she's, she's good. She's good. Time for you to rewatch The Rocketeer, my friend. Okay. <laughs> Time for me to watch Hulk. Ang Lee's Hulk. No. Oh, um, God. Anyway. Snowpiercer, if you haven't seen it, it was on Netflix for forever. I don't know if it still is or not, but the fact that like Bong Joon-ho is coming out uh, for the for the Oscars because of Parasite, you should go back, give yourself an excuse to go back and check out Snowpiercer because it's just unbelievable. And Bong Joon-ho, like, we're, we're talking about him now specifically because of the Oscar thing, but he's just such an exciting filmmaker, Definitely. and uh, he had it in him. I still haven't seen The Host yet. But uh, I've been in his camp ever since I saw this movie in 2014. Can we just say how interesting, like, this and Parasite are in a way? Like, they're kind of cousins. Like, there's definitely some thematic familiarity. Like, they definitely share some interesting through line. I I think the... Man, I really just don't want to talk about Parasite, but I think it's... uh, I don't want to say more than that. I just think that they're interestingly relatable is all I wanted to say. Like, you can definitely tell that the stuff in these movies is something he cares about. And I, would, I would use the word containment. I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that. Yeah. It, a lot of that uh, is parallel and replicated in each of these. And it's also just very... It, it's amazing what he's able to do with very limited I space. totally agree. Is how I'll leave that. But anyway, Snowpiercer is fucking awesome. <laughs> yes, absolutely fucking watch it. So... Maybe the best comedy of the decade is our number 61. Yeah, damn right. And it is 21 Jump Street. Holy, Holy shit, shit, man. It is, It is. in my opinion... Now, there, there might be other movies on this list that are considered like comedy, uh, but maybe a mix with like another... Genre. Genre, like a coming of age or whatever. Or maybe it's just a superhero movie that's funny. But 21 Jump Street is easily the best comedy of the 2010s and it introduced a lot of things to me personally as well to kind of make it just like this huge benchmark for for movies it was the first time that i was like really really like into what jonah hill was doing post like super bad because he's kind of like he's kind of like taken charge of his career and really become like a super respected actor but i think even though this movie is absolutely silly i think this has a lot to do with that because he made Arguably a bigger impression in this movie than maybe... Well, maybe that's not fair. I was going to say Superbad's probably still his biggest movie. Or Wolf of Wall Street. But 21... I don't think you can have Wolf of Wall Street without uh, 21 Jump Street. He loves movies with the word street in them. Yes, he does. Also, this is a movie where I, I really got behind Channing Tate and went to bat for him. This was when Brie Larson was shoved in my face. Thank God. 
uh, Dave Franco, who I didn't really have any sort of uh, impression of at the time. He's really grown into somebody that I appreciate and like. And then there was a couple of other sprinkles in there that I was excited about, like Nick Offerman's cameo. I mean, he's kind of barely in the movie. But... Well, also Ice Cube. Like That's right. <laughs> Ice Cube is awesome in this it's movie. It's true. Like, Ice Cube, Rob Riggle, who I... Yeah. He'd pop up in things, and sometimes he'd rub me the wrong way, but he's just so perfect he's in a, this. He's a good Kentucky boy. Robert. Oh, really? I had no idea. It's from Louisville. Oh, that's awesome. This was a movie uh came out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, I don't think any of us had any idea what a 21 Jump Street movie could look like. I mean, all of us could think of, you mean that shitty Johnny Depp TV show from the 90s? Right. Like, how do you, or 80s, whatever it was, like, how do you turn 90s. that into a movie? And what does that become? As it turns out, it becomes, obviously, the best comedy of the 2010s, one of the most surprising like it's meta level humor is kind of the benchmark for meta humor in movies now like i think there's a reason that lego movie works so well is that lord and miller really get meta humor and they play it up in this as well Mm. but kind of to your point like channing tatum finally really starting to get respected as an actor through this like his comedic timing is so good it really is and he and jonah hill are really excellent together i think a lot about the uh getting high montage Mm -hmm. and even the little moments like where he comes crashing through the the band practice and he throws himself through that giant uh gong like how funny i thought that was that that montage is fantastic my favorite is the Fuck you, science! That's right, that's a good one. (laughs) Also, just like, I love how they portray high school, because a lot of movies still fall into those, like, classic breakfast club stereotypes. Right. But when they come out, and they're obviously old guys on campus, they come out into the parking lot, and they see, like, the vegan hippies, and, like, the emo kids, and they're they're just like, kids didn't look like this when we were in high school, and it's, it's it's just funny how they arrive with these outdated stereotypes. I just I thought that was so smart and interesting yeah. too. Kind of goes back to the the ability to this fresh and meta humor things like that. And I I just thought that was so well done. Well, and this really put Lord and Miller on the map too. Like we need to remember like this was a big deal for them and it really made us appreciate them as filmmakers as well because it's not easy to be coming off of animation necessarily and hitting live action in that sort of way. It was their second movie ever. Yeah, because their first was Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yeah. So, like, going from animation to live action can be difficult, and this is a transition that we don't actually talk about that often. Like, obviously, we were talking about Ghost Protocol just a little bit ago, and that was Brad Bird moving from animation to live action, but... John Carter. John Carter, same thing, but this is a big one because, I mean, smaller scale, yes, but they made a movie that shouldn't work absolutely work and it had a lot of nice surprises along the way too i mean the cameos at the end of the movie arguably make it that much better off the top of your head do you think this is the best example of that yes a director coming from animation to do a live action is this the best example i think it might be very close right now i think it is too yeah i mean there's something to be said about ghost protocol in that or john carter i mean john carter maybe technologically Stanton can get that upper hand, but like there's something about what these guys did and their brand. They never changed their brand of humor from the time that they first started with like clone high. Anyone listening to this, who's never seen clone high. It was a TV show that was 13 episodes, but like ever since they started and really started coming up, their brand has never changed. And, And let's be honest after this, they, they made the same movie again. 
and with it worked with twenty two Jump Street, and it works, and it's almost just as good. It's definitely still one of the best comedies of the decade, without a doubt. And you didn't feel like you could see it, but it didn't bother you at all. Well, and they made fun of it for that too. Like That's right. that was That's that right. was why it worked and, again. And, that meta humor and that move has been done since, and it still doesn't like really always play out that same way i remember like yeah. neighbors Two kind of doing the neighbors thing over mm-hmm. again and it didn't really have a as much of a lasting effect as 22 jump street did well, that's 21 the problem jump with street. comedy sequels kind of period i mean we didn't put 22 on here because we'd already had 21 and 21 yeah. is still the better movie right but 22 does what most comedy sequels do by doing the same thing again but because they were behind it right. and they make fun of it it works, whereas most comedy sequels try to do the same thing again, and it just feels boring. Like, you look at The Hangover 2, what a lazy fucking sequel that is not funny. Right. You know, so there's something to be said about that for, for Phil Oscar and director Miller. Todd Phillips. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, things happen, man. Uh. But we're looking on now, after 21 Jump Street, a movie we both love. This is a film that I really wanted to get on here. I had to get a Richard Linklater film on our list because you were not going to give me boyhood no matter how fucking hard I tried. Sorry. Nope, it's all good. I have at our number 60, Everybody Wants Some, which was a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused. It also ended up kind of spiritually being a sequel to Boyhood in a weird way too, just because Boyhood ends with him going to college and this picks up on the first day of college and the idea of what would be next. I mean, it's not the same actor or same character, but that catalyst was still there and it was something Linklater talked a lot about while he was making it Mm. was that he felt like he could kind of follow up what he had done with boyhood with this while also finally seeing through his sequel to dazed and confused. Can we real quick, just take a second and talk about how funny it is. The movies that neighbor each other on this list. So every time, so we had two Taron Edgerton movies side by side. And then we also like just finished talking about two spy movies already. Yep. And now side by side, like, we just had a conversation about Wyatt Russell on 22 Jump Street, even though it's not on the list. So it's just kind of funny how he's in this this movie as well. I, I have not seen Dazed and Confused, and I have not seen this movie. I saw a part of it when you were watching it the other day. What I, what I like it in the sense that... Well, maybe I'll just like it because I like it, but I don't respond to Linklater. That's sort of my question. So I, I guess my question is, if I don't respond to Linklater, could I find enjoyment just kind of watching these these actors just kind of living this slice of life? Because that's what I get. It's a slice of life. But slice of life is very hit or miss for me because right. you still have to very much justify. Like, if it's a slice of life movie, I still need some movie DNA there, right. some plotting, some interesting concepts, or at least good characters and relationships. Like I, I don't want to just see people living, if that makes sense. I think you would like, of all his films, I mean, obviously the one that everyone responds to is School of Rock, for obvious reason. It was like the one studio film he did, even though it still kind of got that indie DNA. But I think Dazed and Confused and Everybody Wants Some are the most Ryan Snelling. Okay films because it's kind of exactly what you're talking about interesting characters lots of great actors there's some through line to the ideas of it it's coming of age yeah and it's coming of age and i mean look everybody wants some is kind of like a who's who now of who's bigger now in film when you look at the fact that tyler um hochland obviously coming off of superman in crisis of infinite earths and now getting his own series glenn powell's in this zoe ditch is zoe dutch zoe deutsch yeah Wyatt Russell, obviously, as you just brought up, um, Blake Jenner, 
there's just a ton of people in this film that kind of similar to Days and Confused were put on the map in a link a Linklater film only to kind of translate into a bigger career after the fact. And this is where I first discovered Glenn Powell, who, as it turns out, is magnificently great at just about everything. Um, he was in this TV show oh, called Screen right. Queens that is he's hilarious in. And he'll be in Maverick, right? And he'll Top be in Maverick. Maverick, yeah. He was the one that everyone wanted to be uh, He, the son of Iceman. And that right. went to Lost face. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, could, I could see him being uh, a superhero easily, uh, just because he's got that chin and that look. Yeah, and he's just really good, but everybody wants some, ends up being like this really just kind of sweet and fun three days before college starts. What does that look like as you're getting into this routine, and the, he moves to campus, and he gets put in with the baseball team, and they all live together, and it's, what does this feel like for them as you like move into this next stage of your life and right. trying to find the parties, trying to find yourself, trying to find the girl, like there's just something really, really fun about it. It's got a great soundtrack. Like all of Linklater's films normally do. It's just a movie that speaks to me on a like really personal level. And I really find enjoyment out of it. I, I like to watch it of all the movies, the movies that I haven't seen on this list. I'm actually like, well, with the exception of maybe one, uh, I'm really excited to actually watch. And so I, uh, I can't wait to watch this. Maybe, maybe even later tonight or tomorrow since yeah. I'm off of work. I like it. Um, this next movie is a movie that, uh, well, I already spoiled it. I said that we watched it after we made our list. Uh, you had not seen it at the time. We watched dope. Rick Femiua's dope. This movie I don't really know how it caught on to me, but it did. Me and a friend of mine went to go see it in, in theaters that summer that it came out. And I, I was very taken by it. I guess looking at this list, movies we've talked about so far and movies that are coming up, we love coming of age that implements music. We talked about Sing Street mm-hmm. uh, last time. And that's one thing that I love about Dope that I think is extremely underrated, the the musical aspect to it. So that's something I was very taken with, the idea that it's this... It's, it's not a... I was very taken by the uh, the the scenery, if you will, just because I'm I'm super white and from the East Coast and uh, you? not not what? familiar with this uh, <laughs> this whole uh, Compton like uh, is it South Central LA yeah. right? Uh, I'm I was fascinated to sort of see a, a coming of age like uh, musically themed. Uh, comedy in, in this space and it was just something I'd never really seen before and I was very very taken by it but I was also taken by Shamik Moore who I thought did such a brilliant job uh, leading us through this story and you also get Zoe Kravitz who's always great and has just kind of like blown up uh, ever since it's not like th- this role wasn't what did it I'm just saying that she's just gotten bigger ever since then but uh, I-, I really want to know what you think of this movie I know why I loved it I mean I loved it when I walked out of the theater, and it was on my top ten list of that year. What did you think about watching I ended up fucking loving this movie, and it's weird because it was one of those movies that I knew everyone had talked about, and you know how things simply just sort of miss you, and you forget, and you never go back? Right. And I had been keeping an eye on Rick Famuyiwa. Obviously, Mandalorian put him back on, like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Like, he came off of Dope, and he's very popular, and he was supposed to do Flash. But it was one of those movies that, for whatever reason, I had never really gone back to until you were like, hey, I want to get it on the list. And then we finished the list, and you were like, hey, let's watch Dope. Right. And I was like, yes, absolutely, let's do it. I would love to see what this is. It turned out to be 
so interesting. Like, it wasn't quite the movie I expected. I didn't really know what to expect from it, because I actually never saw a trailer for it. Mm. So this whole time, I just knew who was in it for the most part, um, except for Lakeith Stanfield, who I had no idea was in it, which was a nice surprise. I kind of forgot, too. But it had DNA from Friday, which I had expected, which I liked quite a bit. Mm. But it also has, like, this heist element almost underneath well, i was gonna say i think I, when i described it to you i said it was risky business in south central yeah and you were totally right with that it's got a little bit of friday also but also a little bit of that heist element right in an interesting way and the fact that it's so many different things at once and rick famayua ends up being able to control it and like make it balanced over 90 minutes I think uh, or is it a little over? It's a little, just barely over. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, he does it in such a way that it doesn't feel like too much. You're totally in for the ride. I love the characters. It was just a movie that worked for me, and it was funny while we were watching it because I worked not far from a lot of the places in the movie, right. and so they would show stuff, and I was like, "Hey, I I know that place. I know that place because I'd worked in around that area." So it just made me laugh that I recognize some of the locales in the movie too. Uh, upon rewatch and I think this has just been soured because of where we are in like 2020 and uh this like outrage age that we're in. Like the only thing that I didn't care for in the movie not because of the outrage but just because I think it kind of detracts and it's completely random is the conversation that they have about the n-word. Yeah. I was just kind of like, you know what? Maybe it's just because I'm sick of this kind of conversation. Uh, but it, and I obviously respect it because it's coming from somebody who wanted to talk about that. I think in that right. movie, which is like super important. I just like for the movie's sake. I just think it's kind of like completely random. And even when you're like in the scene with them, like Shamik Moore is just trying to stay on track, and two characters are having this side conversation. So, right. un- it's about something that I I value, and I think Rick Famuyiwa values. But upon rewatch, I was like, I'm I'm distracted. It's really totally. how I felt about it. I don't disagree with that as an assessment, to be honest, because right. I, I kind of was feeling the same way. I did like Tony Ravioli quite a bit, though. Um, did you say ravioli? No, ravioli or... Revelori. Revelori. <laughs> I didn't say ravioli, at least You're, I have that. You really are the JTE of this podcast. I've spent way too much time around him, and it has clearly <laughs> rubbed off on me. Oh, man. But legitimately, um, I, I do I like him in that sequence. I just, yeah. but I also didn't need that sequence, if that makes sense. I, but I, I also understand the point of doing and it. And it's hilarious because it's obviously like I'm a white guy saying that. It's it's not that I disagree with the points that are being right. made. One hundred percent. I do not say that word, and I will not say that word. I'm talking specifically for the movie. It was like I feel like he. I feel like there was a way to just accomplish that without feeling completely distracted. Sure. So just execute another way but i have no problem with the actual message behind it no, definitely not but dope really glad we watched it um it's just very 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 good but speaking of shameek Moore, that's right <laughs> the pairings of this just never stop making me laugh our number 58 is another phil lord and chris miller film as well and that is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Here is a film that when Sony announced it, I thought was not really a great idea. Felt like them trying to cash in on the property as they had also finally gone over to the MCU. And I question Sony's decisions sometimes uh, when they're doing things. As we should. As we should. Because they're terrible. And (laughs) I was not 
quite sure what to make of the idea of them doing an animated Spider-Man film, especially one written by Lord and Miller. As it turns out, my fears really should have been alleviated just knowing that they were involved, but I couldn't help but be semi-pessimistic about it, you know, yeah. have my guard up. But Into the Spider-Verse ended up being almost the best comic book film of the year when it came out, but more than that, it ended up being a love letter to the franchise that ended up being warranted, and I think that between this and Homecoming, we really found footing with Spider-Man again, like why we care about the character, why we have invested so much time into him to begin with. Like, it's easy to feel like we got burned out because of the amazing Spider-Man films and Spider-Man 3, but these films together really shone a light on what we love about the character in the world. Yeah, I think Spider-Man is bigger than ever, and I think Marvel has a lot to do with that, but Sony does too, because not only do they have Into Spider-Verse, but they also have the game. Yeah, totally. The game is wonderful. So, like, Spider-Man is bigger, and it's it's just never been better, personally, in my opinion. I like, totally agree with I you. I love everything that we're doing, and Into Spider-Verse has a lot to do with that, because it, it showed me... Uh, a, a way into this world that I, I, I had just never seen before. I wasn't familiar with Miles Morales in the comics, and I just had no idea what they were going to do. Because it, and a lot of it felt like off-brand to me. Like, it, for some reason, I just, like, had this vibe. Uh, not that I doubted Chris Lord and... and, and uh, I always Phil Lord and Chris Miller, excuse me. Um, it's not that I doubted it. I just felt like it was so, like, off-brand. But I also just, like, wasn't pessimistic or... Or doubting the movie because I didn't realize that it was for me. Like I thought it was gonna be like a kids movie, kids movie. It's it's absolutely for everybody. And when I saw it, I saw it with my my niece and nephew uh, who are children. But uh, at the same time, I just thought it was only gonna be for them. But man, was I wrong because I think it's for everybody and it's deeply thematic and yep. also troubling in a lot of parts. And it also just looks amazing. I watched this movie last night. God, and it's still so good, man. It is, it is gorgeous. And I know that that's maybe one of the most obvious things to say about this movie, the animation stylings and, of course, everything that's been talked about. But the last time I watched this movie, it was on my phone in my car when I was driving from Kentucky to Arizona. And that was sort of my last impression. I just kind of had it on. So I think that speaks to its rewatchability factor. Um. But the fact that like I found this new appreciation again watching it on a bigger television and and UHD 4K, I was like, man, this movie is just insanely watchable and entertaining and gorgeous, and the music's great, and it's just got literally everything. And the what comedy, a great soundtrack, by the way. You so speaking good. of the music, like the it's got the best soundtrack, man. Like everything about this movie just pops off in the best way. It's just such a love letter to the franchise. It's actually funny because. A film that didn't make our list that we had kind of gone back and forth on at one point was Lego Batman. And yeah. Lego Batman operates similarly to being like a love letter to the overall franchise and like deconstructing the character in a different way right. in an animated form that's also a parody. This one, though, just goes so much further, I think, in the end. And it ends up being really heartfelt. Mm. Like, legitimately. It's just so well done, and everything about it just stands out. I love that because it's animated, like, you can also have the Green Goblin be the dragon Green Goblin, right. and it looks fucking cool. And, and you can just have Kingpin being a yes. walking block. Right, 100%. <laughs> like, you can literally throw subway cars and shit in it in a weird right. universe. Like, it 
did a lot in an animated form that we necessarily wouldn't get in live action. Well, and you can also just get away with uh, Spider-Ham, you know? Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, uh, every, all of that. It's just, Dude, Spider-Man Noir, come on. That's right. That's right. You can't pull that kind of stuff off, I don't think. I, I don't think that can be pulled off in live action. In, in, a, right. in an age where Avengers Endgame can be pulled off in live action, you still qu- can't quite get there with what was accomplished in Into the Spider-Verse. Totally, and it just works on a lot of levels. And if it's an introduction for... Spider-Man for people, I think the best part about it is is that it's not Peter Parker's story. We haven't really even hit on that so far, but the fact that they actually let Miles Morales be the lead in this is really, really awesome. That's and right. I think that that alone is necessary because we have had quite a few live-action films with Peter Parker in the lead. And yeah. is Peter Parker in this? Yes. But I think that Peter being troubled and you know, frustrated and down on his luck and letting Miles kind of help him and help Peter find his way is really great storytelling. And yeah. I think it was a necessary step because, you know, Miles is Hispanic and he's African-American. So for him to get to be a lead is really awesome. Well, there's also something to be said for just like flipping Peter Parker on its head. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, with Peter B. Parker. Yeah, it works. It all works. And also shout out Chris Pine as Peter Parker in this too, because none of us knew he was in the movie and it was just such a, he was so good in the little bit he's in. God, this movie just works on so many levels. Awesome. Number 57 is a movie that I'm kind of like shocked to this day that I watched just because I think like I was bored one day, kind of going back to the Snowpiercer story. I was bored one day and just happened to see that this movie made some random critics top 10 of that year. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll just watch this if if someone's saying this is one of the greatest movies of the year. And this is a movie that might be our most, like our least known of every movie on here. There's one other contender uh, at the top of the list, that might be the least known, but this one deserves to be seen by everybody who loves movies. And our number fifty-seven is Short Term Twelve. It's hilarious, by the way, how many actors keep popping up already. We've already talked about how funny it is, the, the, all the neighboring movies or whatever. But here's another the Keith Stanfield movie. Here's another Brie Larson movie. This was pre-Room. And Brie Larson had already done the thing in a movie that everyone claims she did for Room. Like, I I saw Room and was like, yeah, this is another time when Brie Larson just knocked me off of my feet. Short Term 12 is maybe the anti into the Spider-Verse because it is is definitely not for everybody. It is not for Quadrant and it is not enjoyable, but in in the best way, just because it is so deeply troubling and it's it's heavy heavy material but it's also just insanely beautiful and if you don't know what it is uh brie larson plays like a supervisor at this uh residential treatment facility that deals with a lot of like troubled youth maybe they're suicidal or depressed and they have issues at home things like that i think it's like is it a halfway house it's it's, it's similar to that similar to that and uh, she's also dealing with uh uh, her longtime boyfriend there, but there's one particular individual played by Caitlin Deaver, who we uh, we follow uh, the the main youth, if you will, in the movie, and we followed their relationship with each other, and it, it is it is daunting. I remember crying like an absolute baby 
when I watch this movie, but it is uh, it, it is just simply fantastic. There's some really great actors in this that pop up, too, like Lakeith Stanfield and Rami Malek are both in this as well. And more importantly, it put Destin Daniel Creighton. Creighton? I've, Creighton? I don't know. The director. Creighton. Creighton. Yeah, we'll go with that. He got put on the map as well. Obviously, he and Brie have worked together multiple times yeah. since. Uh, I believe they've made three movies together. But now he's also doing Shang-Chi for Marvel. That's right. Um, so he's come a long way from Short Term 12. But I remember this was a movie that I hadn't seen. It was one that was recommended to me by someone in my life. I don't remember exactly how it came up. But they were like, hey, you should see this movie. And... It totally just wrecked me. It's a weird recommendation movie. Yeah, it is. But (laughs) from the person who recommended it to me, it's not super surprising because she's someone who doesn't lean towards like blockbuster filmmaking in the same way. She's drawn to stuff like this. Yeah. So from her, it made sense. And I was like, all right, I'll check it out. There are sequences from this movie that have stayed with me since I saw it. Like anytime someone goes running, I can hear, I think of that sequence of them running after the kid. The trying boy. To get away. Yeah. yeah. And you hear this, like the, it just, there's something about that sequence that has stayed with me because it's so haunting. Almost. I think one of the most memorable things for me is the Keith Stanfield's, uh, poetry reading or yeah, whatever. Totally. When he's kind of like rapping in his room. Tour. Yes. I was like, Oh my God, what is this? What movie am I watching? It was crazy. And at the time I didn't know who that was. I, None of that, us did it. That really. was the, that was the first time I saw the Keith Stanfield. Yeah. So, and he's come such a long way too. Like I, I love that guy again, looking at dope. Like he's so good in dope. Well, Atlanta, Atlanta is when he just like absolutely fucking shines. And he, He's even great in Death Note. Like, that movie is terrible, but, like, he's good in it. So there's so much to like about this in the end that I like a lot. It just is a movie that I think went very overlooked. I mean, it's not, like, a big blockbuster-type movie, so, of course, it didn't make a lot of money. It's the smallest small movie on our list. Easily. (laughs) Probably outside of Everybody Wants Some. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that you owe it to yourself to see. If you want to see... Just how good Brie Larson can be in things, this is the movie. This one right here. Totally. 100%. So moving in past that, we are at our number 56. And our number 56 is an animated film by DreamWorks Pictures that I absolutely love, and that is How to Train Your Dragon. This was a movie that I felt deserved to be on the list. I think it's a movie that... As far as DreamWorks is concerned, this is probably their best film in a lot of ways. Um, I think the whole trilogy is really you like kind this of over as Shrek. A whole. Different than Shrek. Shrek is probably still my favorite, but I think this is arguably their most grown-up filmmaking, if you will. Sure. Um, and I know that that sounds weird, but DreamWorks is known for being almost more quantity over quality. And when How to Train Your Dragon came out, it was the same year as Toy Story 3. So the idea that there could be an animated film by another studio that could emotionally go toe-to-toe with Toy Story 3 was not something any of us really expected. And yet, almost back-to-back, these two films really just, like, throttled the audience in, like, their storytelling and the way that they were going about things. 
And this was a movie that I didn't necessarily know that I needed right. um, at the time that it came out. And as it turns out, it's one that I totally needed and has stayed with me for a long time. But there's something about the world of Burke and the characters who inhabit it that is very, very cool. It's got some really great world building. Jay Barichell is so good as Hiccup in the, the lead of this. And his relationship with Toothless is just so wonderful. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the idea of putting prejudice aside because you're led to believe a certain thing for so long by the people who raise you. And to put that aside to find a common ground and maybe you can actually get along with the person that you're told you're not supposed to, even though it's a creature. Right. Um, I just think that it's got some really incredibly thrilling sequences that were done, especially in 3D for the time, the first time that they take flight. Um, there's a lot to say about that. It's just a really great movie, and I love so much about it. I feel like, obviously, these movies are big. We just had the third one uh, this past year, but I don't think they're in the conversation they're enough. They're not. They're not. I, I don't know if it's just because I feel like they're not like marketable characters. I don't see a lot of kids wearing How to Train Your Dragon. I know there's like the animated show. Yeah, and, and it was on Netflix, like six seasons or something. But it's kind of just like a thing that happened in a lot of ways. It's weird how how... That works out, but regardless of that, I think what attracts me to this franchise and this movie is the the boy and his dog story yeah. that I like so much. I mean, I, I take it back to E.T. We talked about Pete's Dragon, um, uh, Iron Giant, even mm-hmm. what they did with Bumblebee. I mean, those kinds of movies, I just uh, I very much enjoy, and I think that kind of goes back to my love for coming of age. Like that's one of my favorite. Uh, tropes, and this is, I guess, in that way, and this is arguably coming of age in a lot of ways too. It, yeah. Totally. You know, well, especially you, now that you can make the legacy play, and you've seen this character sort of age, right, over 100%. time. You know, but this movie, man, like, there's something about the score is a beautiful. Um, John Powell did it. Did this one, I believe. He also did Solo. Like, the dude is just ridiculously good, and everything about it just really leaps off the screen for me like I love everything about it and kind of like you said like that whole boy and his dog sort of thing is one of the best tropes I think that's part of the reason a movie like I Am Legend stayed with me for so long Um, it's also the reason I can't watch that movie very frequently is that has a very tragic end for the boy and his dog if you will so there's something about seeing this through to the end and it's not a a tragic ending for once like you can enjoy it and there's something really sweet and wonderful about that um, it's also arguably one of the best family films of the decade easily. Number 55 was an absolute event for me. And I'm very excited to talk about this because I, I can't decide if the conversation around this film has changed or not since its initial release. That is Sam Mendez's addition to James Bond, and that is Skyfall. This movie just kind of blew me away when I first saw it. It was weird how how much... Personally, this was the most celebrated James Bond movie that's come out in the Daniel Craig era, just because like, I didn't see Casino Royale in theaters. I don't think I saw Quantum of Solace in theaters. I think I saw them both after they had already been released, uh, if I remember properly. But Skyfall was the first one I went to go see. And we went with a group. I had a friend of mine... 
at the time that was like this diehard James Bond fan. And we, mm-hmm. like we had just kind of become friends. So I was like, okay, yeah, it'd be cool to go see this with him to see how he takes it. And uh, a couple of other friends. I have another best friend who loves Daniel Craig. Uh, shout out to Sturgill. But anyway, so it was weird to have like this weird hodgepodge, this weird group and his, his dad. We all went to see this movie and it was a packed theater. I remember it was super cold uh, in November and it was a packed theater and it was just an absolute event for everybody and I had to pee so freaking bad by the ending oh my god I I can't remember the exact moment that I walked out I think it was as they were traveling over the ice I just literally was about to die and I watched the final moments of the movie like standing in the hall like before you round the corner for the seats like Mm -hmm. just in the walkway or whatever and I was just like standing there and I watched the rest of the movie that way uh so it's a very vivid memory that i have seeing this movie but i i guess that's the question like has the narrative around this movie changed because we can't help but flood our minds with all of the uh just subpar mediocreness that is daniel craig's bond era or is it just is it is it something else or, so, or am i completely off base no i don't think you are because i think the narrative has changed around the film quite a bit at least on the online space because skyfall coming off of quantum of solace obviously that was a film that was hurt by the writer strike initially like they just ended up shooting a film with a bunch of action sequences and for what it's worth like quantum of solace gets a lot of flack i actually think it works really well if you literally watch it like following Casino Royale and just watch it kind of as one movie, they actually work pretty well because they're very lockstep in their story for the most part. I remember being under that impression. I watched Quantum of Solace and heard everybody trashing it, and I was just kind of like, this is just harmless. But maybe that's... Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's the problem. Just because it's like, okay, so how did you justify making a sequel to Casino Royale? Right. So when Skyfall came out, it was a big deal. It was obviously the first billion-dollar Bond film. Um... Mendez really knocked it out of the park. He had drawn a lot from The Dark Knight. For obvious reason, The Dark Knight is a very popular film, and it was a deconstruction of Batman right. in a way that we hadn't seen. So by doing that with Bond, it worked. My biggest gripe becomes not necessarily that I don't like the movie. Obviously, I do. We got it on the list. It was the only Bond film that made the list. There was only three options at that point, but still. No, maybe only... Yeah, three options at that point. Uh, Casino Royale is still my favorite, so I'm going to be upfront about that. Like, that is arguably the best Bond film to date. It's obvi- It's also just a great film. And I think that the problem with Skyfall becomes, one, Sam Mendes coming back and doing Spectre, and Spectre yeah. is so blah compared yeah. to this outside of the opening. I mean, but you know what's funny is I had to ask someone recently. I couldn't even remember what the opening sequence to Spectre was <laughs> because it, the movie is just so forgettable for the most part. It's the train, right? No, it's the Mexico City, uh, him walking through the Wait, day. Wait, the train is Skyfall. Yeah, the train is yeah. in Skyfall. But regardless of that, the other thing is is that I, maybe this is where my problem with what they've done with Bond has become. But because of what they do in Skyfall, and maybe this is – not fair, but they continue to go down this route of we have to explore Bond's past, and I've really burned out on that, and I think it really starts here because I love the end of the movie all the same. How how are you burned out by it at this point? Because they force it into Spectre. Oh, I thought you were talking about going into Skyfall. No, So, but what I'm saying is because it starts here so heavily and it continues to translate, and obviously we're also seeing it in No Time to Die, Yeah, that... 
it's just a track that I don't necessarily love that it put the franchise on. I, I, that's fair, but I think, yeah, to speak specifically to the movie, I remember kind of being blown away. Right. Like, actually getting the moment as they're kind of looking onto his estate, him and uh, M. I remember her just kind of talking about his past. I remember thinking, this completely changes my right. impression of James Bond. Because up until this point, James Bond, especially growing up, when I would just kind of like pretend that I was James Bond, even without any understanding as to who he was, that that was kind of like the point. Is that yes. he's really just this this shell of a, a trope, really. But that's kind of what's cool about him. Which and, is why I like that they humanized him so much in Casino Royale. Right. And I... 100%. And, and it's weird to start the conversation like, hey, here's our number 55... Did we really want to put it on our list? That's not really what I... My ultimate goal, what I was going to arrive to, is that despite all that, it's kind of like the Avatar effect. Like I, I see a movie that I think is so well done, so fantastic, a lot of great sequences, super well acted, and people are just kind of like, oh, well, it, it happened, sure. I remember liking that movie, but I, I'm just not that impressed with it anymore. Right. And I'm just kind of like, really... Like, come on. Like, I know the obvious Dark Knight comparisons, and in a lot of ways, this might be... It's definitely not... It definitely doesn't have the better villain than the Dark Knight, but I think I might enjoy the protagonist story throughout more. No, definitely. And I I know I'm being a little hard on it, mostly because I'm looking forward from Skyfall, but here's what I will say on, like, Skyfall is beautiful. It's got a great score. Like, visually, it's beautiful. It's, It's so striking. It's... That whole fight sequence with the neon lights in the back yeah. is so rad. Uh, there's a lot to like about the third act. I like calling it like Home Alone almost. Right. Um, I love the relationship between M and Bond, kind of what you touched on. The movie is great. There's no denying that. I just don't love the track that it put the series on because the stuff with Blofeld feels so tacked on Inspector. And again, it's probably not fair to Skyfall to feel that way. Right. But it's hard for me to disconnect it at the same time because this whole series has become like one storyline in the end because they've all tied to Bond's past in a certain way. Right. And this being the linchpin of how far can we take it, if that makes sense. So I get it. Still a great movie and totally deserving of its spot on the list. I just wish it hadn't pushed Spectre in that direction. And watching the No Time to Die trailer, all I could think about how similar it looked to to skyfall so it's like that that credits skyfall to me but it kind of discredits other things but yeah totally we also have plenty of time so we're about a third of the way through the list right now so i'm going to recap these real quick number 66 was the big sick kingsman the secret service eddie the eagle mission impossible rogue nation snowpiercer 21 jump street everybody wants some dope spider-man into the spider-verse short term 12 how to train your dragon and Skyfall. PJ, what is our number 54 film? Our number 54 film is a movie that is easily one of the best sports movies of the decade. Uh, it was a movie that I was not anticipating and enjoying nearly as much as I did when it came out, but I'm a big fan of Gavin O'Connor. Um, my f- two favorite sports films of all time are Remember the Titans and Miracle, which Gavin O'Connor directed Miracle, and that is Warrior. Tom Hardy, Joel Edgerton, Nick Nolte. What a great goddamn movie this is. Um, I know that a lot of people like UFC and fighting like that. I really didn't know a lot about it. Right. So it was a movie that I initially was not very drawn to. Not because... Not because I don't like UFC, but 
just because when it comes to sports films, like I tend to get drawn to like football movies and movies about hockey, right. things that I care about, and obviously boxing. When you look at the Rockies, I was gonna say it's it's weird to say because it is so it's a lot closer to the boxing side of things than the than the uh, but and boxing is like so cinematic. I mean, it's right. all it's for the most part all cinematic, and that's what's great. We say it all the time how narratively rich these movies are, but but you're right. I mean, I hadn't seen an MMA movie up until that point. And all the other MMA movies that had come out were like fighting. That were like yes. straight that maybe they weren't literally straight to DVD, but like just like the straight to DVD, like B quality movies that just kind of felt like step up more than it felt like a prestige family drama that this is. Right, and I think that's what made this one work so well is that it was this prestige family drama. And again, having someone like Gavin O'Connor, who, when you look at his filmography, he's done very good work across the board. Obviously, mm-hmm. Miracle. You look at something like The Accountant, uh, which right. I actually like a lot. I was excited for him doing a Suicide Squad at one point. That could have been very cool. But there's just something about this film. And this was the movie that really put Tom Hardy on the map for me uh, more than something like Inception, just because in Inception, he's such a small part of a bigger whole. Right. But this one really let him shine. But more than that, it also put Joel Edgerton on the map for me, too, where I could really see what he could do. 100%. I think I watched this movie. What? I can't remember exactly how it was released up against Drive. I don't think they were released at the same time, but I think my theater had them at the same time. So mm-hmm. I remember like going to the theater and deciding, do I really want to see Warrior or Drive? Like that was, I remember being excited because I really wanted to see both. And uh, ultimately, I saw Drive. I didn't see Warrior until it came out on DVD, unfortunately. But the thing that I was most taken by was like yeah, I was taken by the fact that it was like the first MMA movie that I had ever seen. But I think. I don't know if I'm ever going to say this on this list again. I remember just watching this thing and being like, this is the best acting I have ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it had to do with Nick Nolte. Yep. I think a lot about the scene where Nick Nolte is drunk and breaks down crying and uh, Tom Hardy just uh, holds him and cradles him and lays him down on the bed. And there's a lot of great scenes between Joel Edgerton and uh, Tom Hardy and and also Nick Nolte, I remember just being blown away. I think Gavin O'Connor has a lot to do with that as a director, obviously, yes. but also just the way he shot it. I think I was that much more there just because of how intimate and how raw it looked uh, always on screen. But I'm, I mean, I was just so blown away by the acting, and I don't think anybody talks about the acting from this movie. You did mention Tom Hardy, but you're exactly right because I. I feel like personally, I've seen Tom Hardy act like three times ever, which, sure. which is like a weird thing to say just because it's only because I'm, I get really annoyed with him easily mm-hmm. when he's just grunting and like, like lawless. Like, I, I feel like, um, he, he's just kind of like always doing that thing and you don't get a whole lot out of him because he, he wants to be so stoic and reserved. I, I get, I get really annoyed with him, but Tom Hardy just like. This is maybe top three roles of his for me personally. Oh, no, I totally agree. And uh, what you just said about the acting in this movie and the idea of um, it feels just kind of gritty and real. I'm actually hoping, is it The Way Back, the new one he's doing with Ben Affleck about the basketball coach? Yeah. That, I'm hoping, is very similar to this. Yes. And that's a testament to how good Warrior is, Mm. that I'm hoping that it's replicated in some sort of fashion in that. Because this movie reminded us 
look how good Nick Nolte is. It showed us how good Tom Hardy could be. It reminded us how good Joel Edgerton could be. So wouldn't it be great if The Way Back could also remind us just how great Ben Affleck can be? Like, that... That's really what I'm looking at here with this. So that I agree. Alone, this movie's just fucking phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. Easily one of the best sports films of the decade. Also, shout out to Brian Callen for making Movie House's top 100 movies of the decade list. You for, deserve that, Brian Callen. We love you. For basically just playing your friend Joe Rogan. So anyway, there's that. Uh, what is number 53? So another sports movie that we <laughs> recently talked about. Back to back. That's right. Very Ford, funny. Ford v. Ferrari. And we talked about this on our top ten list. Uh, I don't know if we have to really go over it again, but Ford v. Ferrari, I feel like, is arguably the best. There, I, I guess we keep saying that, and it's probably why they keep showing up on this list, because we're dealing with the best of the best. Yeah. Uh, best sports movies. I, I love them. I love uh, we them. both do. I'm not a bit. I'm not the biggest sports guy at all, but I love a good sports movie, and Ford v. Ferrari showed up this year. You guys know how many times that... Oscar nominated now. Yeah, Oscar nominated. I was going to say, you know how many times you and I have watched Remember the Titans? I, a I've lot. T- I mean, I watched it twice in one day because I watched it in my room, went downstairs, and you were watching it downstairs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's... Just saying, we do love sports movies around these parts. Um, I, again, love this movie. Was not expecting to love it as much as I did, but it speaks volumes to James Mangold and his direction. I also think it speaks volumes to Matt Damon and Christian Bale and what they brought to the role. I just think that they are such a great duo together in this film. Uh, I said it before in our review. I think it might be one of my all-time favorite sports films now. I just think it's really that good. It's up there with like Field of Dreams for me in a movie that just made me feel something so viscerally by the time it was over. I just... Really, really love this movie. If you haven't seen it already, you really owe it to yourself, too, because it's just really wonderful. Yeah. Shout out to James Mangold for shooting an, a race for an hour and still yeah. making it so rich. And, like, so emotional. Like, mm. I, I'm still so surprised just how much it made me feel. Yeah. A lot of great... Ford vs. Ferrari has great villains. Yeah, it does. Like, oh my god, I remember hating Josh Lucas in that movie. It's got I still hate great it. villains. Yeah, everything about it, man. The, talk about a movie that just, every time you look at it, there's just so many different things to take away from it. Like, it doesn't matter if it's the human emotion behind the scenes, or the human drama of the race itself, or right. the family life at home, or, you know, there's just so many different facets to the movie that work, and that's what I love about it. Um, similar to our next film. Our number 52 is a film that I'm very happy made the list. It is a movie that showed just how far a franchise could come from necess- – I don't want to say ruin because I don't think that franchise ever faced ruin, but it got very close. <laughs> but what you could do and come back from that and still be the absolute best of you mm. and show that there was still – this is why we reboot things, and that is Don – of the Planet of the Apes. That's right. Matt Reeves coming in off of Rupert Wyatt's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which was a really great starting point. But Dawn was everything I'd hoped that the franchise could become in showing where the world would go post-outbreak. What does it look like when the humans are still trying to find their way in a world where so many of them have been eradicated by a disease and what about the apes as they continue to get smarter and build their own society? Andy Serkis is front and center as Caesar. Caesar 
easily one of the best characters of the decade by far. I agree. Uh, it's not even close. The fact that he was never nominated for an Oscar is a fucking tragedy. I agree. Uh, what a great movie, man. Oh, my God. I remember seeing this in theaters with a with a huge group of friends. And by the end of it, I just I was staring at the screen thinking, this is the best blockbuster that's ever been made. It, it, I, <laughs> I mean, was so taken by it's it. It's so good. And shout out to Fox. I think Fox has consistently throughout its entire legacy done the most with with science fiction. Obviously, even going back to Star Wars, but also your alien. and all, I mean, Predator. Fox, yeah. Fox has done great work with science fiction and letting these things be thematically rich and deep and not just CGI fest. But it's interesting, too. Like, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, you can actually see this, like, intimate story as it unfolds. It kind of gets, like, bigger and bigger. And the, the climax, if I remember it, is is kind of a CGI fest. fest right. Because it's Caesar versus Koba in that falling, like, skyscraper. Mm-hmm. So it's like, in a weird way, you can kind of make a parallels to say even like what was done in the Wolverine. Right. But it's kind of like the best case of how do you how do you take a character or excuse me, take care of this character in this world uh without spoiling it. And you never spoil it. I was so unfortunately disappointed when I rewatched this movie. I had it on uh maybe like a week or two ago. I had it on, and I hated so much that I had seen that the motion capture had aged. Right. But it, it's not a testament to the movie. I think it's a testament to how far we've come since then. Right. And I, I, all I'm really saying in the case I'm making is that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and the work that Andy Serkis and company did for that movie was so groundbreaking at the time, and we wouldn't be where we are without it. But uh, I could definitely kind of see the the seams a little bit when I was watching it. But that doesn't mean that like you just you're so taken by the fact that there are apes on horses. It, j- it just looks wonderful always. The acting's great, and it's it's one of the most experimental blockbusters I've ever seen in my life. Well, and it's a testament to how far this franchise has come because I mean, there's five movies in the original series. Then there's the reboot as well that. First time, the Tim Burton one, which is real fucking bad. Like I said, it didn't completely kill the franchise, but it got very fucking close. And then you look at Rupert Wyatt's, and Rise had a terrible marketing campaign leading up to it, if you remember. Kind of. Like, none of us thought that a new Planet of the Apes movie was a good idea. That trailer... It's just the entire movie. I know. It was so funny. I, on a whim, just was like, oh, I want to go back and watch the trailer. I watched the trailer for Rise, and it's literally just the movie. And I'm glad that I didn't remember that going in. Yeah, but I I remember being blown. Rise was the first movie I saw when I moved to Southern California. Oh, really? Yeah, in theaters. And so it was a monumental time in a lot of ways, but that was the big deal. And so it stayed with me for that. But man, like, Look how far they took Rise, and look what they did with Dawn. Like right. just the from one movie to the next, the quality jump is it, crazy. It's funny that you say that about Rise because I think Rise was the very first Blu-ray I ever owned. Really? I think it was the first movie I bought after my Blu-ray player. That's awesome. Yeah. Look at us. That's cool. That's right. Yeah. No, I mean, look, Dawn is the fucking goods. If you haven't seen any of the Planet of the Apes films, fucking watch them. Um, if if you haven't, I always recommend watch the original, then watch the new ones, then you can go back and watch whatever else. But Planet of the Apes, always good. Glad that Apes on Horses made the list. That's right. 2014 was awesome 
for blockbusters. We have the Winter Soldier. We have Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But we also had Guardians of the Galaxy. God damn right we did. <laughs> I remember leading up to this movie being so freaking excited about something I knew absolutely nothing about. I saw the footage that leaked from Comic-Con that year. It was that rotating shot of Rocket on Groot's shoulder in the prison shooting uh, the, the machine gun. And I remember just being like, holy shit, I need this now. And then they released like this eight-minute special look. Which the IMAX was one. Just the the breakout sequence, yep. essentially. And I, I have the poster from that still. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I saw that and was like, man, this is going to be my favorite thing ever when when I watch it. And I'll never forget my best friend in the world, Eric, just not understanding why I cared about this. And it wasn't even that I could like, contextually explain it to him. I, I, I don't know. I just never... I can't remember the last time I felt that way. It was just like such a sure thing. I cared so deeply about something I'd never seen before. And it, it was just such a weird experience for forever going going into the movie prior to having seen the film. Again, I took a bunch of my friends. I think it actually came out, since it came out August 1st, We I forced our friends group on Eric's birthday, ironically, to go see this movie in theaters. And I probably cared about it more than anybody there. And all of us obviously left just absolutely adoring the thing. But I, I just remember always smiling, smiling throughout the entire thing. And I think about the opening sequence, uh, how how troubling it was and how I, I couldn't, like I didn't even know. I knew so little about the movie that I didn't know the movie could do that, but also do everything else that it did. And anyway, that that was more of an anecdotal anecdotal personal thing, just because Guardians of the Galaxy has been talked to death, as uh, most Marvel movies have. But that was just my experience uh, going in, and obviously coming out, it's uh, it's just quite an amazing film. It, the fact that Marvel pulled it off is amazing, and I was in Hall H when they announced that they were doing the movie, and I I never thought I'd see the day because I'm. Rocket Raccoon's one of my favorite Marvel characters. He always had been um, ever since I was young. And so the very first thing that they showed on screen when they made the announcement was Rocket Raccoon. Right. And I remember breaking down crying in the middle of Hall H because it was a weird thing to be like, oh, my God, they're really doing it. And it just showed what Kevin Feige could do. I was then at Comic-Con when they brought the first footage after two weeks of shooting. Had Bradley been announced? No, not yet. Okay. Um. Because at the time, it was essentially what the teaser trailer would become later. Yeah. But they showed that footage, and I was blown away that, oh my god, it's Groot and Rocket. Right. Fast forward to the movie coming out. I had done the IMAX preview. I had done all of that. And then, of all things, and this is an anecdotal thing for me too, but it's a thing that means the most to me. Guardians of the Galaxy is still the only film as a film critic I have ever been quoted on inside a TV spot. Oh, really? Yeah, if, so that's always been a really cool thing with me. It's stayed with me for a long time. Like, if you, I believe it's the Guardians of the Galaxy TV Spot 9 is the one where I'm actually quoted in it, and it says Star Wars for a new generation. That's cool. Yeah, and I that was me. Oh, my God, dude. I remember having that argument on Film Beef with uh, my film teacher that I've referenced before, Shields, on here. Uh-huh. I literally made that exact case that this was Star Wars for a new generation, and uh, I remember just duking that out. I was the only one that shared that belief. because In the, 
the argument that was thrown in my face was the the, the technology play that Star Wars has. Like, obviously, nobody had ever seen that in the special. It's play still movie, Star Wars which, for a new generation, which I one hundred percent it it one hundred percent is without a doubt. But um, anyway, it's hilarious that you uh, were quoted as that. Yeah, so just a weird thing. But I mean, there's not a lot to say about this movie other than Gunn and his whole crew knocks it out of the park. Uh, what a great soundtrack! The fact that it sold as well as it did. It's I believe was still one of the top 10 albums sold of the decade. Oh, was it really? Yeah, it was what something James Gunn posted uh, a couple of days ago. I mean, dude, there's not enough that I can say about Guardians other than it was a monumental achievement that Marvel pulled it off, and it just goes to show that you can trust them to do anything Mm. because they made Guardians of the Galaxy work. My parents know who Rocket, Raccoon, and Groot are, and there's a weird world where that's a real thing. That's right. I take emails from a talking raccoon. Yeah, I, I loved that, by the way. Uh, our next film is a movie... We're at our exact halfway point on the list, by the way. This is our number 50. This is a wild oh, time. Of the, of the top 100? Yeah, yeah absolutely. We're at, the, we're at that halfway point, you guys. And this is a movie that I absolutely adore. It was a movie that was just announced for a Criterion release, actually, which I'm really, really excited about. And that is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, this is Wes Anderson at his absolute best in just about every f- facet of filmmaking. There was a there was talk between us if we wanted Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest on this list. And as much as I love Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest is just the best. It's just funny. It's smart. It's warm. It makes you feel good while you watch it. What a great cast. Uh Everything about it works on every level, and it's got a wonderful score to boot that I still listen to to this day. This movie is the goods, and it is exactly where it needs to be at the halfway point of our list of movies you must see from this year. Yeah, so I'm going to make a confession that's going to drive people nuts. Um, I have never seen a single Wes Anderson movie. I know. Literally zero, and here's why. I am not attracted to anything that he's selling for some reason. Like they're I, not Ryan Snelling movies. I, I have this weird thing about whimsy. I have this <laughs> like in my head. In my head, again, this is an uneducated, ignorant statement because I don't know. But in my head, I just see another like Tim Burton kind of figure in a way, and I'm just not picking up what he's putting down ever. And I've for years been around people that adore these movies like in high school life aquatic and darjeeling were big things right and then obviously grand budapest hotel was probably his biggest movie that's been in front of my face and it's probably just because i was following the oscar race and i was really getting into podcasting uh, about film in 2014 and that's when this movie came out but uh yeah man i i've just never been attracted and never felt compelled to watch any of these movies. And the argument came down to Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel because I think th- I think I asked you, what's the one that I would enjoy the most? And I think this is the one that you sort of settled on. Yes. E- even though in a weird way, like my impression was always that I would probably enjoy Moonrise Kingdom more. But uh, I-, I genuinely have no idea and don't know. It's so weird to me that you've never seen a Wes Anderson film, but at the same time, I also really can't fault you because he's such a specific filmmaker. And if it doesn't speak to you, it just doesn't speak to you. He, he you kind know of, what I mean? Like, he kind of just, I don't know why he annoys me. He annoys me without having seen any of his movies. I don't know what that means. Well, Wes Anderson, when you listen back to this podcast, I, you know, why are you so annoying? Wes Anderson, <laughs> 
I, I can say that one of us here really does like your work, so thank you for doing it, number one. Uh, I won't apologize for his comments. He's allowed to have his opinions, but it's wrong. I think I, I'm, I might make 2020 the year where I sit through uh, all of these movies. I mean, look. Ray it's Fiennes, a massive blind spot. I know it is. And you you look at Grand Budapest. Ray Fiennes, obviously, is mm. fucking incredible in it. Cerise Ronan is really great in it. Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> I'm going to always say Cerise, and I don't know Saoirse why. Ronan. Saoirse Look, they even did a whole SNL sketch about it, and I still fuck up her name. So it's not just me. Goldblum? Goldblum's in this. Murray? Obviously, Will, Willem Dafoe. I mean, Bill Murray and Jeff Goldblum this are cast. mainstays of cast is, Wes Anderson. Other than uh, the <laughs> Matthew Amalric, who plays Sir Jex. That's the only name I don't know that's uh, billed on the top. Like, the entire IMDb page I is mean, fucking stacked. Adrian Brody, Twilight Swinton, Edward Norton. Look, you got to see this movie. If you're listening to this Do and you I? haven't seen it. You got to see this movie. Grand Budapest absolutely belongs on this list, and I'm glad that we got it on. This next movie I had not seen up until a couple days ago. I fought for this movie. You fought for it. Everybody made the case. Hey, this is this is for Ryan Snelling. You'll be into it. You'll dig it. It is the perks of being a wallflower. And up until this point, all of this movie was, was like a book adaptation, but it was also the... Uh, the genesis of the gif of Emma Watson dancing and licking her lips, in my opinion. And I watched this entire movie waiting for that moment, and I was like, wait, Emma Watson's hair is unusually short in this movie. And I thought that she had long hair in the gif. And I watched this entire movie waiting for that moment and realized it's not in this movie. You were thinking of the bling ring. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I thought this was the bling ring the entire time. And uh, <laughs> so there's that. And that was my experience watching this uh, the other day at my house, uh, or at your house. But uh, the the perks of being a wallflower, the thing that I was uh, very taken aback by was how old this movie looks. Mm -hmm. It's shot, it's very striking the way that it's uh, shot, the cinematography. It feels very, it feels dated on purpose. Yeah, it's a 2012 film. Uh, It was just like, what, one year, two years right before we got like Spectacular Now. And Mm -hmm. it kind of looks like they were made in two completely different decades, which I found very interesting. This was easily the best performance from from What's-Her-Face that I had ever seen in my life, Emma Watson. Just because I kind of made the comment as I was watching it that uh, I've just never really... I've never really liked what she does with her face when she acts. I just never thought she was a that great of an actor. Uh, but she's actually like really fucking good in this movie and, and totally proved me wrong. But the other thing too is like, I, I've Logan Lerman, uh, he's not like, I don't know, he's not striking to me as like a leading man. Like, he, I, maybe he's not supposed to be because he kind of just pick, picks weird projects and he's never really taken off. Uh, he could have played Solo, and I remember hating that prospect just because he did not look like Han Solo at all. But um, I don't know, man. He, I mean, he showed up in Fury uh, a couple of years later and did a good job. But uh, I don't know. There, there's just like a few reasons why I, I didn't see this this movie in a timely fashion. But I am glad that I decided to uh, to pick it up just in time for this list. What's your experience with this movie? Uh, so I had read the book. It was... It was lended out to me, lent out to me, 
before the movie. I don't remember exactly when in relation to all of it, but I remember I had read the book. Mm. They had talked about they were going to do this movie. It was going to happen. And it kind of sat for a while, and then they finally did make it. You got Emma Watson. You got Logan Lerman. You got Ezra Miller. It just started to come together in a very interesting way as far as, like, YA adult or YA books go right. as adaptations. And I always thought it might be a hard book to adapt, and it was not. And it turned out to be a movie that just was so overwhelmingly emotional and it speaks to like the very human side of the coming of age films. Like it's not a comedy. There's comedic bits, but the thing that I kind of like the most is that it really leans on what high school can feel like if you're dealing with shit. Right. And it's very earnest in that. And it feels very real. Like there's so many things going on in this film about, you know, people hiding who they really are. Like what abuse might do to some people. Right. Uh, the idea of we all want certain things and we don't always allow ourselves to be free of the things that hold us back and trying to find a way to release yourself from that is very interesting. It's mm. just a movie that works on a lot of levels and I love it very, 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 very much. Um, and also, like, as weird as it sounds, I'm a fan of Rocky Horror, so I always love that they have the Rocky Horror side to it also, and it's like a thing that they all kind of bond over, and that's always fun too. But like, it's just a really, really great film. It's not your typical coming-of-age film, and I really hope that people will check it out if they've never seen it, because you have to see it. I, I think it was fascinating to see this you know, eight years removed, because I've seen where else they've all gone since then. So right. for, at first I was like, oh, that's really interesting that Paul Rudd is playing maybe the most reserved character he's ever played in his life. I was mm-hmm. pretty taken aback by that. I don't even know if I knew or remembered that he was in the movie going in. Uh, what Ezra Miller did, this was sort of his coming out party, yeah. uh, if you will, in Hollywood. Julia Garner, who literally has like two seconds on screen, but it was funny to see her who's gone on to uh, um, be an Ozark and but she she just picked up another huge role. I can't remember what it was. She's playing. Um, uh, give it to me real quick. Come on, you got this. Uh, I, I don't remember. I, I can't remember. She just got this huge role. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, and she also married uh, Mark Foster from Foster the People. Anyway, huh. regardless of that, uh, Julia Garner was in it for like two seconds. Uh, Nicholas Braun, who is uh, in Succession, plays Ponytail Derek. I thought that was hilarious. Kate Walsh playing the mother. She eventually goes on to play the mother in Thirteen Reasons Why. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of seeing how how all of this came from that in, in a in a cool way. But yeah, um, I mean, it's a launching pad for a lot of people in a very cool way, actually. Like when you think about it like that, um, or for Emma Watson, like a reintroduction to anything outside of Harry Potter. That's right. That's right. And it, so I, anyway, I'm just so glad this is right up my alley. It, it was not what I was expecting. I had a hilarious take in the middle of the movie. In the okay. middle of the movie, I texted you and was like, you know what? I'm not, I don't <laughs> like how this movie is show, showing his attachment to his aunt, even though she died when he was like five, because he wouldn't even remember her at this point. And, and all I said and, was, finish the movie. Everyone in the group was like, you idiot. 
keep watching the movie. And uh, so I couldn't help but just kind of laugh at myself when that happened. It's not the movie's fault. It's just I'm a complete dumbass. But I couldn't help but just have this ridiculous uh, reaction to to the reveal at the end of the movie. But anyway. That that was one of my favorite moments ever. I was just like, Ryan, just finish the movie. I can't say anything else. Yeah. Just finish the goddamn movie. Yeah. That's, that's what I get for not being disciplined and just letting a movie tell its story. <laughs> Um, again, weirdo, uh, list because so many, uh, movies, so many neighbors have something in common and, uh, our number 48 is another Emma Watson movie. Yes. Yes, it is. Are you excited to talk about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows part two? Because it, yeah, we have to talk about it. I mean, <laughs> look, I can't believe how far removed we are from it at this point, by the way. It still doesn't seem real. I remember being there opening night. I actually went to a double feature of one and two back to back um, to really experience God, all of it long. again. Yeah. But I prefer it that way. Uh, you know, my hot take on this is that they're not separate movies. I think that they work better, obviously as one film versus being split apart, but deathly hollows part two belongs on this list for many reasons. The biggest of the biggest being number one, I think this was the one film that made the case of, why splitting a book up in half makes the most sense because there's just too much to Deathly Hollows that if you take it out, it just wouldn't have worked. Um, so did you just admit why it makes sense to split a book into two movies while also claiming that it is not two no, movies? It's not two movies. But it is. It literally is two movies. There's <laughs> two acts in one and one third act in the other. That is, which makes an interesting discussion, considering that you have a movie that is two acts and another movie that is one. But act. that makes them one movie. <laughs> is my bigger point. But I more mean the idea of actually having the mindset of making sure you adapt it correctly. I mean, we've seen time and again people do the splits and it doesn't work. But this was the one time where it was like you needed all the materials so you couldn't cut anything out. Right. Um, I think that speaks to J.K. Rowling as a writer where she was like this book was literally cause and effect all the way through and the movie would have to play out similarly. It was also the end of a big era. Like we'd already said goodbye to the book series, but to go out like this – and do like this big grand finale. Again, the whole movie is a third act, so it's big. There's a lot of action. There's a lot going on to say goodbye to Hogwarts because at the time, none of us thought we'd probably ever see it again on film. We were wrong about that, but at the time, to say goodbye to something that, I mean, at least for me, I grew up reading the books and seeing all the movies every opening weekend. So it was very emotional to say goodbye to it because the year the book came out, was my senior year of high school. So the summer before my senior year, Deathly Hollows came out. Then I'd finally graduated and it was like putting a part of you behind, like part of your childhood and like leaving it and saying goodbye. So there was a lot of emotion built up into it, but there's just something about this film in particular. I don't necessarily think that it's fully adapted correctly. I think that the battle could have been handled a little different, but I think as a film, it works magnificently as a final note on the franchise, and I love it. Yeah, I just don't think you can... Like, Hollywood would never make this kind of movie if it no. wasn't a book adaptation. Totally. Like, the, the Harry Potter franchise is just such... I mean, it's such a treat, for one. Just because I mean, I, I said for years that Harry Potter was better than Star Wars, and now it's like, well, also Marvel is better than Star Wars. But uh, Harry Potter just... 
you you would never get away with just making those movies on their own. Like no, totally. just what goes into it, especially the darker that they get. I mean, they're very uh they're very deep, especially as you progress through the story. And I don't know if like it, it, it kind of reminds me of like Lord of the Rings in that way. And but it's like you wouldn't get away with doing Lord of the Rings on your own either. It, unless it was done for you in in a book. So it's just uh maybe one of the best adaptations ever. Absolutely. Uh, from from page to, to I'd, screen. I'd say almost all of them are, yeah. to be honest. I, I would agree. I, I had a very interesting personal experience. I've talked a lot about this, but I read the I read the first two books as a kid. I saw Sister Stone and Chamber of Secrets as a kid, and then it just kind of fell off. I didn't grow up with this uh, the way that everybody else did, but it was always in my face. I remember the same summer that you spoke to everybody. I was working at the pool at the time when it came out that summer. And I remember a bunch of the lifeguards uh, leaving to take a break so that they could come get the book. And then that that summer, there was a Deathly Hollows book like everywhere laid out yeah. at the pool. Uh, I remember all that. But I was obviously into, into movies by the time this came out. And I, I, I saw the trailer for it. And I was like, man, Harry Potter, I don't know what I thought this was, but it is not fucking around. And I sort of decided, like, I need to get in on this. So I know I was super late to the game. So in between part one and part two, I had watched the first two movies again and rewatched all of the movies for the very first time leading up to this, just because I felt like I had to experience this as a movie lover. I had to experience this with everybody else as Harry Potter fans. So um, I, I was shocked at how much I loved it going into it and bought tickets. That was still when movies were playing at midnight. Yep, because I went... And then so, ours started at midnight after the first. I was so excited to to experience that midnight release with the diehard Harry Potter fans. Went with the group, and everybody had loved it long uh, before I had. Um, since it was a midnight release, we probably got out of there at like 3 a.m. My boss, I was scheduled to work the next morning. I worked at Office Depot, and I was supposed to go in early to receive the truck. And then that day, he told me, uh, I had to come in an hour earlier, which I think was like 5 a.m. And so I was like not about it. And right. at the time, I had three jobs. I worked at Blockbuster, I worked at the pool, and I worked at Office Depot in the mornings. And I decided that I was going to quit. This is one of my favorite stories to tell people. I called my boss, knowing that I was going to see Deathly Hollows Part 2 at midnight, and quit my job so that I didn't have to go in the next morning. And it was because of Harry Potter. But he was like, yeah, you know, you'll never have to, you'll never be able to work at Office Depot since you were just kind of doing it last minute without two weeks notice. And I said, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, fine. That's fine. I, I get to see Harry Potter. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was that was so funny. But um, I, I never am the kind of person to predict things before they happen. But I, I was an emotional wreck throughout that entire movie. And I was with one of my best friends at the time who loved Harry Potter. And I looked over at her and I said, Harry's a horcrux, isn't he? And it was about halfway through part two. And she looked at me. And she had tears rolling down her face, too. And she just looked at me and said, yeah. And it was like one of the most like affecting, like yeah. somber. And I, I don't like doing that. I never predict shit because I turn my brain off when I watch movies. But for whatever reason, it just kind of hit me in a way. And I watched the rest of the movie knowing what everybody else did. And for even that's, yep. I just think that's so interesting to well, me because I never would want to do that any other time. So it was funny because, I mean, as far as this series goes, my dad and I actually read all of the books together. Right. And so then he 
and I and my mom would go to the movies, and so he and I would always be ahead of the curve, right? And then my mom would be the one who'd be like, "Wait, this and this, and you know that sort of thing." So it's always been interesting to be a part of that because I've been on both sides, right? Um, so it's just kind of interesting, like in in a way, like in the similar vein that we talked about Force Awakens in the last episode. This the Force Awakens was a force to be reckoned with in a lot of ways because it was the beginning of something new with Star Wars. This was the opposite of that. It, like it speaks to what you just said. You hadn't even you saw the trailer and you were like, "I need to be on this as a yes. film fan. I need to be able to see this and like I need to be a part of this." That speaks to just how culturally relevant Harry Potter became, and that's why this one in particular needed to be on the list over the first one because right. it was a milestone for so many things in film. And I think especially for you and I, I mean, in different ways, but for you to come in and be like, I need to be a part of this. And for me to be like, I'm saying goodbye to this. Right. It's very different, but also very similar in how important it ended up being. I I think my experience with Harry Potter, even though it's been very short lived, I think it's maybe one of the most rewarding things about my uh, movie fandom. I think It, it is, it is very, very special. And now that we're a few years removed for, from it, and arguably going through this weird era where you know not everybody agrees that these Fantastic, uh, Fantastic Beast, Beast movies are great, which I don't respond to at all. But I don't think Harry Potter gets enough credit those those original eight movies uh, when it comes to one of the best franchises ever made. And, I don't uh, disagree with that at all, and I also think it kind of what to your point with the whole thing with the Fantastic Beast films. The one thing I will say is like. I understand people's gripes on them. Again, I'm a big fan of the franchise overall. I like some of what they've brought to the table. It's amazing to me, though, that those movies are made by the same director who did, like, the last four Harry Potter movies. And I'm really, like, right. it's really time for David Yates to move on. That's all yeah. I'm going to say about that. I agree. All right. Uh, our number 46 is maybe the best horror movie of the decade. I think it definitely is on our list. I mean... On our list it is, and I would argue that it's not really far off from being accurate. And it's, it's just amazing what's become of The Conjuring, because they have spawned their own cinematic, cinematic universe. universe, and I, I think it's just incredible. And I don't know a whole lot about the other movies, aside from the first two. Con- Actually, I think I've only seen... The Conjuring movies. I, okay. I, I've seen parts of uh, Annabelle Creation, which is the second one, right? Yes. Dissenberg. Uh But other than that, I haven't watched any of the other ones. But regardless of that, um, I'd be an idiot to not recognize the fact that in this era where everything comes from books and comic books and things like that, TV shows, this this is a pretty special uh, movie and, and franchise. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It, it takes... It takes a bit to get me involved in horror, and I didn't watch this until it was it had been released on uh, on uh, VOD or Blu-ray, whatever. And I watched it, and I was just thoroughly shocked at how much I enjoyed this movie. Yeah, um, I'm never gonna forget when it was coming out because I remember being at WonderCon of all places, and I had, was there because I wanted to see the panel for Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, but they were also double billed with The Conjuring, and so. The very first thing I ever saw from the film was the sequence where all the mirrors and pictures fall. Yeah. And you hear all the crash and stuff. That was the very first scene from that movie I ever saw because that was what they brought with them to WonderCon. And then James Wan brought the actresses out 
and he brought the real life daughters with him from like the real story yeah. the one that this happened to and so to listen to them i started getting amped about this idea like i like james wan already at that point he wasn't james wan right he was oh that guy like he's done some decent work and i suddenly had my eyes on it it had this prime summer release date which is a big deal for a horror film right they don't get movie release dates like this and we ended up getting an early screening for it and my friend justin and i went and I was just blown away. I'll never forget the atmosphere in the film or in the theater while it was going. Like, similar to A Quiet Place, the theater was here for this movie. Dude. Right. People were just like edge of their seat, drawn into the story. It's one of, if not top five, maybe haunted house films. That's how good this movie is. Uh, it's atmospheric, it's got a great cast. Vera Famiga is so good. Patrick Fantastic. Wilson is so good. Like Fantastic. They're fucking amazing together. Ron Livingston's quite good as the husband who's kind of getting put through the ringer with all this. All the little girls are very good. Um, Joey King in particular stands out because she's the only one that I recognize like right away as having gotten bigger. She is like, she's bigger, but she's also, she just has not taken off. No. It's weird how she's just kind of like, oh, her again. Right. <laughs> like she... She could have easily become Chloe Grace Moretz, but I don't know. She just doesn't have... There's something about her that just has not taken off, even right. though she's in everything. Like, maybe her biggest role was the act this year. Yeah, the Hulu show? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. But that, that might be the most impressionable thing she's done. Man, this film is just so goddamn good. Uh, everything about it works. The scares are great. Like I said, it's because of the atmosphere and the build. Obviously, the clap sequence alone has become iconic. Absolutely. Um, that was my first impression. Right. It just Everything about The Conjuring works on the level that it should. If you haven't seen it because you don't like horror films, this is a perfect place to start. The Conjuring universe has weirdly become like one of my favorite cinematic universes, not because every film is good, but because they're so earnestly made and they continue to push forward and do these things. Like Annabelle Comes Home was one of the most fun films of last year because it really just plays on to what this universe has become. And I loved that they actually had the Warrens in that film. And, like, to let the Warren house come to life with the shit that we've seen throughout these movies has been really cool. Like, right. not every movie is a home run, but I have fun watching them. And sure. that's that's really, at the end of the day, what matters. But it all starts here. This was a horror film for the decade. It was a horror film that set us on the path of giving us James Wan as a filmmaker. There's something to be said about that and how cool that is. So, this movie rocks. I love The Conjuring too. Um, yeah, I do it, too, it, man. And I, I noticeably critique that movie. Like, it kind of wants to be two different movies. There's like kind of like two different stories and legends and villains going on. Like the nun is part of it, but also the uh, the crooked man. It was just kind of like it wanted to be a couple of different things. It wasn't nearly as organized and concise, but I still very much enjoyed even the second one. So yeah, I did too, and I actually think the second one has one of the best moments in the entire franchise, and that goes to the credit of how good Patrick Wilson is, but it's yeah. when he's trying to keep everyone calm and he plays Elvis. Like that sequence is so good. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of something Steven Spielberg would normally do in some of his movies. I see that. You know what I mean? So it just stands out. Check out the conjurings. If you haven't moving into our 46 is a film that <laughs> I know that people are going to be thrilled with us about. And at least I hope they are. And that is star Wars. The last Jedi is that higher than the force awakens? Yes. Yes, it is. 
for good reason, because Ryan Johnson loves Star Wars, he understands Star Wars, and he gave us a film that is arguably, in my opinion, maybe the best Star Wars film of all time. Um, My favorite is always going to be Return of the Jedi, but I think that The Last Jedi goes a long way in really pushing what Star Wars is to its absolute limits, and I think that Ryan fully understands what Lucas intended to do with this franchise and what he could do with it. Yeah. I think Ryan Johnson is definitely the best director that has ever had Star Wars in his hands, first of all. Yes. Second of all, this is like this weird combination of everything that exists in this movie could only happen in a Star Wars movie while also being the most like anti-Star Wars movie, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. In the best way, because he wanted to do some fresh, different, turn it on its head, sort of change how we thought and, and framed every single thing that we had come to know about Star Wars. And I think it, it is a tremendous success. I remember coming out, even though I've always, I've always enjoyed the movie. I came out of it, and I think I put it like number eight on my like. If you remember, Force Awakens was tied for three on my 2015 list, and I think The Last Jedi was like my number seven or eight of mm-hmm. that year. Um. I've I've come to really fucking especially the more I've I've rewatched it, uh, really admire uh, yes. everything about it. And you and I have had so many discussions on this movie. The internet has had. I, I'm almost bored talking about it, honestly. But that's that's just because of the conversation, not the movie itself. But you know, there's the whole like Canto Bite controversy and things like that, which is maybe the most common criticism, and it's one that I. I think I fall under as well, but like I even like recently, I, I recently rewatched it, and even though I think it's such a disappointing uh, thing for Finn to explore, like I I liked Rose, I liked Rose's addition in the in this character in this movie in the franchise to the point where it was like annoying that she barely had a thing in Rise of Skywalker, and I don't want to make it a Star Wars thing, but I do want to recognize the things that I just think absolutely work and that are just simply different because this year, especially I got a movie that felt more of the same and it, it really bothered me. And I think honestly, that makes me admire the last Jedi even more. So like I said, I think one of my favorite things to say about it is that it could only exist in star Wars while also being the most anti star Wars thing. Cause you're not going to be able to get, you, you just kind of can't make this movie any like if it's not a Star Wars movie, kind of going back to what we said about uh, um, Harry Potter, the things that you're able to do in that movie, you can only do within that context, and otherwise, that movie would just never get made. No, totally. I mean, there's not a lot to add to this discussion at this point. Like, you either like the movie or you don't. Like those, the line is drawn. The camps all exist. I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment, but it is what has become of that as of late and that's fine i'm just glad that we got it on the list because and i know that there's people listening to this who do not agree with us just simply put there's people listening you don't agree and that's fine that's okay but i think that it really speaks volumes to just how great ryan johnson is that we have this movie on the list i agree 100 percent. this this next movie I admire a lot more than I think I love it. It is Denis Villeneuve's Sicario. Now, yeah, boy, this movie might be like my number four favorite Denis Villeneuve movie, but I think we have to have this movie on the list because we talked about uh, 
what Taylor Sheridan mm-hmm. uh, already so far on this list. Denis Villeneuve obviously maybe the most impressionable director of this decade in particular. I think it's without a question, even without off the top of my head, remembering if we include, I think maybe all of his movies are included on our list. Just that came, about. That came out other than uh, one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah just, there's uh, just one that definitely did not. But Sicario, I think, um, I think what spoiled my viewing of Sicario was I, I had downloaded it again. This, the release window was annoying for it. And uh, I had like downloaded a torrent and it wasn't like the highest quality or whatever. Uh, so that was unfortunate for my first viewing, but I've watched it another time since. And that was when I was like really kind of taken, taken by it. Um, it. It's not my favorite Denis Villeneuve movie, but I think it is. It's again, paired right next to another Benicio del Toro movie, which is uh, the better Benicio del Toro movie. Uh, Star Wars: The Last Jedi. But um, anyway, I I, th- I think you might like this movie a little bit more than I do, but I absolutely respect it. Yeah, I and I think similarly to you, I wouldn't necessarily say that I like love the movie as an entertainment factor. I love it as a film and like as an experiment of filmmaking. Um, the real world horror that it kind of finds itself in is so fascinating to me. And I mean, arguably like you and I kind of talked about it earlier in the year because of Rambo, like Rambo deals with a lot of the same stuff, but it's a Rambo film. So it came under heavy fire for what it was doing. Whereas like Sicario very much deals with a lot of the same real life horror, obviously better filmmaker, but it's just interesting that this movie delves into such a dark place with the drug cartels and things like that. Um, Brolin and Emily Blunt and Benicio all give just like, really stellar performances across the board. Mm. Um, The movie is striking to look at. It's visually just gorgeous all the way through. There's sequences from the movie that will always be seared into my mind because it was shot by Roger Deakins. Like, the dude knows how to shoot a movie, and it's not even close. Like, everything about it just... It's uncomfortable. It's haunting. It's very, very tough to watch at times. But it's necessary to watch, if, if that makes sense. Isn't it hilarious that it spawned a sequel? Yeah, and... Uh, and I like the sequel. I like the sequel, too. I <laughs> I wanted hilarious. the third one. I don't... It's been a long time at this point. We haven't heard anything, and I'm kind of thinking it's not going to happen. Right. But I really loved the idea. They were saying that Emily Blunt was going to come back for the third one and, yeah. like, really kind of tie everything up. But I love that. Yeah, I mean, what a unsuspecting franchise in the end for Sicario <laughs> to become. But, like... It's great, and I want to say that that final confrontation that Benicio del Toro has with the villain of the film, yeah, it it is stayed in my mind since the first time I saw it, and it's not for the reasons you might expect. Like it's just such a tense scene, and it's just so perfectly kind of drawn out the way that it is because Denny knows what he's doing. Like he's right. just a great filmmaker. So Sicario just. Absolutely belongs on this list, if anything. One, because it really put Denny on the map again in a way that it was like he's always someone to watch. But he also pushed all his actors to their limits. And it ended up being a very rewarding experience in the end for it. 100%. So we have one-third of our list left, guys. So I'm going to read uh, the other 22 real quick. The Big Sick, Kingsman the Secret Service, Eddie the Eagle... Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Snowpiercer, 21 Jump Street, Everybody Wants Some, Dope, Into the Spider-Verse, Short Term 12, How to Train Your Dragon, Skyfall, Warrior, Ford vs. Ferrari, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Guardians of the Galaxy, Grand Budapest Hotel, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Harry Potter, The Deathly Hallows Part 2, The Conjuring, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Sicario, 
What is number 44 on our list? Number 44 on our list is a film that I was very excited made the list. Uh, and again, this speaks to what we were talking about earlier with this franchise in particular is what you can push the limits to in what you're doing with it. And that is Mission Impossible Fallout. Fallout, again, was the sequel to Rogue Nation and the second film with Christopher McQuarrie as director in the franchise. And this, again, as we were talking about it earlier, Rogue Nation is arguably the best film bar none in the franchise, I think, as far as what it does storytelling-wise. But Fallout, on the other hand, is the culmination of what you can do with this franchise on just about every other level. The action is notched up to the nth degree. Um, He uses music and visual storytelling more, I think, as like an overall. There's a very haunting sequence involving just score and no dialogue that has stayed with me since the movie came out. Yeah, The addition of Henry Cavill as the film's kind of villain in the end is really really awesome the return of sean harris as the big bad behind everything of course just was a great addition alec baldwin actually getting to be in on the action the return of rebecca ferguson like everything about it and even having what was started in mission impossible 3 finally being tied up in fallout with ethan and his wife like really brilliantly all put together this movie has some amazing set pieces everything about it just works on an extreme level that it is instantly memorable. It is not easily forgotten ever and it deserves this spot. So this idea of putting fallout and rogue nation, not only both on the list was so close together was controversial to, to me just because I remember trying to challenge you to really only keep one mission impossible movie on the list just because the DNA of those movies is is very similar, and um, you fought hard to keep both on there. Made your case about how they're they're different movies, and you know I still kind of I I, I disagree. Well, I agree in the sense that I feel that even though Rogue Nation might arguably be the best Mission Impossible movie, I think Fallout is it's better the better contribution to say cinema. Sure, like totally. I feel like. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation super fun as a Mission Impossible fan. And then I feel like Fallout was just like what what the franchise could become later. Well, well that, but also just the idea of, okay, Hollywood, now it's your turn. Like, respond with what you've got. I think Mad Max Fury Road did mm-hmm. the exact same thing when it comes to action. Like, okay, let's see if anybody else can do anything like this. It really ups the game. Stunt work, action. I, I think Mission Impossible Fallout is the first film in the franchise. And Interesting. This is, uh, for whatever reason, a controversial uh, debate in the movie community. They don't like the movie versus film thing. It's just a manner of speaking. There is no difference. It's just to get across how how maturely something was handled or maybe how something was framed or shot because I think it definitely looks different the way that it's shot um, personally. But yeah, I think if you want to go with me on this, the all of the other Mission Impossible movies are, are movies, but like this is like the film. This is like when I saw like Casino Royale or or even Skyfall. Like this is the Skyfall of this franchise. That in, I do in my kind opinion. of agree with actually. So yeah, that, yeah. Just just go with me on that. 
No, totally. And also the addition of Vanessa Kirby, um, another strong female in this franchise was really great, too. I thought she was really excellent in it, and it really put her on the map. And also, I mean, we haven't seen the next two, the two-parter ones, but I think that, like, Fallout is the reason why we're getting whatever this is going to be, I think. Yeah, totally. No, 100%. And again, I think it speaks to how great these two work together with Cruz and Macquarie. Like, they just work so magnificently together. They are arguably one of the biggest forces to be reckoned with in a creative level. That's right. Uh, because we've been talking about that. These two work together. It, they just do. That's right. Our number 43 movie is David O. Russell's The Fighter. I think that this movie is insanely rewatchable. <laughs> is that weird to say? Is The Fighter a rewatchable movie? No, it totally is. Yes. I think, I think it very much is. And it's entirely dependent. Not only, of course... Sport movie, boxing movie, but it's also the acting. It's just incredible. Like, holy shit. It's obviously Mark Wahlberg's best movie. Christian Bale crushes it. Amy Adams. I think this is what caused me to fall in love with Amy Adams. Amy Adams is uh, just one of my favorite actresses, and I love her, and I love the movies that she's she's in. I think it really just kind of put her on the map officially for me. But she she'd kind of been working consistently up until this point. Uh, so that that probably wasn't even fair, but this was the first time I was like, "Oh yeah, you are. You're one of my favorite actresses." Um, I just think it, it obviously speaks for itself because it was uh, Oscar nominated. One, it won two Oscars, uh, but had plenty of other nominations. And maybe is it? Do you think it's David O. Russell's best movie? I think that yes, arguably it, outside of maybe Three Kings, this is my favorite. Yeah. And I think it's his best by far. And I have a very soft spot. I watched Civil Lightning's playbook, yeah, playbook even last night, and I love, 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 love that movie. But The Fighter is better. I mean, I'm just drawn to sports films, obviously, as we've talked about. And The Fighter was one that I was very excited about because I like Mark Wahlberg. I like Christian Bale. The idea of them being together is always interesting. Like, Christian Bale with anyone is always interesting. Look at Ford versus Ferrari. That's right. But... Bale won an Academy Award for this film. Um, much deserved, in my opinion. I really, really love this movie. Uh, remember, they were talking about doing sequels. I would have liked to see yeah. the characters continue. But this also goes to exactly what we were talking about with uh, Warrior earlier, is that it's a boxing movie, yes, but it's also a family drama underneath yeah. all of it, and that's why the movie works so well. The boxing stuff is great. But it's everything else that elevates the movie. Think about Melissa Leo, the shots of him and his, what, like eight sisters or whatever. Yeah. Just like, and it's really about a guy in the neighborhood. Yeah, totally. And it works. Like, it's just a great film. So, one of one that I always like to go back to in the end, it just works. But, like, it's, yeah. I hope that people understand why it's here because I know that David O. Russell is kind of like an acquired taste for some people and he's got a history now, but, like, it doesn't change the fact that I still think, as a filmmaker, he's been interesting, and this is a movie that deserves to be praised. I agree, 100%. Our next film, our number 42, is a film that I am very glad made the list. It is a movie that I will never stop talking about until the day I die, and that is Shane Black's The Nice Guys. Uh, I actually wish this was in like the top three movies because I fucking love this movie so much, but I'm glad it's on the list. Uh, Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe ended up being the most perfect buddy cop duo in a movie that I didn't know I needed. I agree. Uh, this was a throwback to, obviously, things that Shane Black had written, like Lethal Weapon, but 
in the vein of like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. This was his spiritual sequel to that. And it works on every level. It's insanely quotable. The action is fun. The movie just stands out as what I love about going to the movies. And I wish more people had seen it because I would have loved to have a series. 100%. Like, it should have been not only a series of films. Maybe it should have been a TV show. Sure. Regardless, everything you just said, I echo. I mean, you obviously love this movie more than I do. But I really, really do like this movie a lot. And... Shane Black, I I love Shane Black when he's doing this kind of thing. Not the Predator. Um, I don't like. Yeah, I don't, I don't like when he. It's not that I don't even like dislike Iron Man three. Like it's just like not my favorite Shane Black thing. Right to me, um, I like when he stays in his wheelhouse, and I and I'm someone who likes Iron Man three more than the others, but like right, I like when Shane Black sticks to this. Yeah. So, The Nice Guys, I saw it in the exact same theater, if you remember me talking about Baby Driver, how, like, it was just, like, a low-quality theater for whatever reason, so I wasn't, like, as involved in the movies I wanted to be, but I certainly did enjoy it. And I'm actually kind of shocked. I think I've seen, like, parts of it since, but I I don't know if I've ever gone back to rewatch it. I think I might have really only seen it in the theater on that weekend. And, I I mean, I was very disappointed at how, how poorly it did at the box office, just because I enjoyed it enough, and you hate to see that kind of movie not not do well, yeah, especially totally. when you enjoy it so much. I mean, like, if this movie came out in a different decade, I mean, it would absolutely crush, in my opinion. If it had come out in the 80s, even arguably the 90s, there'd probably be three or four of them. I agree. I agree. But, yeah, the chemistry, even what they were doing, like, they... I think they presented at the Oscars the year prior. Or, well, no, the, I year, guess it, the following year. Was it the following year? Yeah, because they play off of each other for it. Oh, okay. I thought it was leading up to it. So it was kind of like we saw what, what it was going to be on screen. But I remember just like being so taken aback. Because like Russell Crowe really hasn't shown out a lot, especially in this decade. Like, right. He hasn't really done a whole lot that's that's really notable. But um, the fact that he was in this, and I, I thought we were going to get a resurgence, resurgence from him. I don't know that it's really happened yet. But, uh, I mean, Ryan Gosling and Shane Black was one of the best things that happened to him this decade. Yo, 100%. And, <laughs> I mean, they're so good together. Also, uh. This movie introduced us to Angoria Rice, who would end up being in the Spider-Man films. She plays Ryan Gosling's daughter in this, and she is excellent. Uh, I like her a lot in it. Just everything about this movie just works. I love the way that it plays into like the murder mysteries of old, and like just it's just a good movie. It it's really just is. a really fucking good movie. It really is. Another fucking good movie. It's a movie that we talked about on our best of 2019 list. Goddamn right. Number 41 is Jojo Rabbit. Um, You know, I don't have a whole... I mean, we've literally just had this conversation, but it was just the, the, the shock value of what that movie ended up being by the end of it. And I, my my impression was actually very limited. It was entirely based off of Taika Waititi and, like, ScarJo... And, like, even, like, the controversy that had come out, I was so excited to see what Taika Waititi would do with Hitler. Like, that that was really all that it took. I thought that was just such an interesting idea. And uh, I don't even know if I watched the trailer, because I rewatched the trailer uh, the other day during uh, the—it was right around the Golden Globes time. I just wanted to watch the trailer. And uh, the trailer reveals the story— and I, I, I definitely didn't see the trailer because the story unfolded. Uh, it was completely fresh to me. So I just I kind of couldn't remember if I'd seen it or not. But um, just kind of walking in to seeing Jojo Rabbit was one of the best uh, experiences of 2019 for me. And so that movie was just like very special and very fresh. 
and ended up just doing so many things so well, genuinely funny. And uh, yeah, I, I think Jojo Rabbit is maybe the second highest. No, it's third real quick. It's the four. Okay, so this is the fourth highest 2019 movie. And I think somebody mentioned to me, they saw the list prior. They asked me, oh, Jojo Rabbit's already that high? Yeah, it's that fucking high. Because I cannot wait to own this movie. Me I'm gonna too. I'm going to rewatch the shit out of it. And... Uh, yeah, I, I just love it. Yeah, I just love it. I mean, obviously, we've talked it to death. You and I both reviewed it. Then we talked about it again on our 20, top 2019 list. Not a lot to add. I just think it's a phenomenal film. Uh, there's a really bad take going around right now that the movie uh, makes light about Nazism. And if you think it's it ta- makes... It's not true. It's not true. And if you think that, you clearly misunderstood the whole message of the movie. So if you haven't seen it yet... Please fucking watch it. It's a really, really incredible film. Uh, I just love it to pieces. Our number 40 is a film that you haven't seen, I believe. Correct. Correct? This was a film that I thought to have on here, and it was similar to our conversation about Mission Impossible. And that was that there was a film already on the list that we knew would be there, and it had a sequel. And it was a sequel that I thought was better in every single way. But because you didn't see it, the conversation became, should this be on the list? And yes, yes, it absolutely should. Because this is the kind of filmmaking when I am just so wowed when a filmmaker takes a movie that they made and takes it to the next level with the sequel. And that is Gareth Evans' The Raid 2. The Raid 2 was a shock to the system in a way that I didn't think was possible coming off the first one. And yet everything about this film is top to bottom better than everything they did with the first. It's like when you go from Batman begins to the dark Knight, and you're just so blown away by what they accomplish or Terminator to Terminator two. That's the kind of scale that we're talking about. It's weird when you were selling this to me, you, I, I don't remember you saying I don't remember you doing that because mm-hmm. I think I think the point that you made to me was that it wasn't that it was way better. It was that it was a completely different movie. Well, I think it's way better, but it does also a completely different movie. Okay. I was going to say, so, especially now looking back at the Batman comparison, it's like I think now we're seeing some of the, the shine wearing off of The Dark Knight, and it's really just a matter of which of these two great movies do you prefer between right. Dark Knight and Batman Begins. And that's I, how I remember you sort of pitching this to me. Right. And so I guess I'm looking at it in just like when you take the scale and you expand it so greatly. That's kind of how I look at it because, you right. you know, like Terminator 1 to Terminator 2, it's the same type of scale. But the thing that was so crazy about this film is like the first raid is an action film that is just like brutal and in your face. It's 90 minutes. It's quick. It's contained like you're in it from beginning to end. Once they get in that apartment complex, like you're stuck for the next 90 minutes. It's a contained thriller. This is basically like a Godfather-level mob film that has martial arts in the center. Why aren't these movies bigger? Because people don't like subtitles. That's really it. They're foreign. It's foreign. And there's a a reason that these were the only two I fought for on our list. Because, you know me, I watch a lot of martial arts films. There is plenty I would have loved to try to get on. But, like, there's... Our audience, and this is not just ours, I mean, the American audience just doesn't respond 
to martial arts anymore or foreign film kind of in particular, which is why I was glad Parasite got so much love at the Academy Awards this year because it's nice to see that. But regardless of all of that, The Raid 2, if you haven't seen the first one, first, you have to see it. They directly play off of each other. Like, it's a direct continuation. But the stuff that they do is so insane. The action is so heightened. The last third of the film, I've never seen action quite like it. And I haven't seen it replicated since. And that's crazy when I think about it. But there's just so many fucking bone-breaking action sequences. The stuff that they put eco Uace through is insane like he's so good and the fact that he gets to be so much more of an actor in this one mm. speaks volumes i think to how we have mishandled him just about everywhere else when when he's right. been in things <laughs> because he's so good in it right. and i just think emotionally it works as a film that you really feel for him and you're really fighting for him and you really want to see this played through to the end um, I think you would love it. I, I'm sure I will. I yeah. mean, I love. I mean, I love the first one, obviously, and I champion it. the The trajectory that you sort of set it on that you've illustrated is exactly the kind of thing that I would want from a sequel from the Raid. So, yeah, I'm sure I'll love it when I watch it. Yeah, um, and I want to say it made Tarantino's best of list, and the movie actually has a little bit of a Tarantino vibe um, in the way that it handles beautiful violence. Yeah, um, this one compared to the first. The first one's very in-your-face about the action. This one is too, but it's beautiful, if that makes sense. Right. So, j- just a wonderful movie. Absolutely deserves to be on our list. Um, you guys need to check it out. Have you seen Apostle? I have not yet. I need to. It's it was awesome. one that I kept meaning to see, and I think probably because it was Netflix, I eventually just kind of forgot it was there. It's It's got like... It kind of reminds me of Midsommar in a way. Well, but, I've heard it's very Wicker Man-esque yeah, also. It yeah. is. It, I, I think it's awesome. Okay. It, it's it's a little weird. but And it's it, Dan it Stevens, awesome. right? Dan Stevens, yeah. Yeah. Gareth Evans. Fuck yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll watch it because I like, I, like, um, I like Gareth Evans a lot. Yeah. I think he's super, super talented. And that's the other thing. Like, just with these two films alone, and obviously I haven't seen The Apostle, I also think it makes the case of, like, we overlook directors that are not American. Right. Um, and it's really frustrating because someone like Gareth Evans is arguably more talented than a lot of the pool that we have here. Well, well but he'll get his say when we see his Deathstroke movie. All right, so number, right. So number <laughs> 39 is a movie that... You definitely love more than I do. Yes, I I contested this a bit because I don't I don't even know if this belongs in my top 100 personally, but I'm not the only one that was in charge of this list. So uh, I'm interesting to sort of talk this out. Number <laughs> number 39 is Pacific Rim. Goddamn right it is. Yes, 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 yes. So 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 cool your jets, cool your jets. Let me tone down that volume a little bit. The thing about Pacific Rim. I saw it in theaters and I was uh, high, so uh, it aff- it affected my viewing in the sense, like in a weird way. This is a great movie to see high, but also I probably just like didn't follow the intricacies very well. But visually, it's striking. It, here's what I'll say about Pacific Rim: I think all of its instincts are pretty spot on. Uh, starting with say 
I love the cinematography. I love that it was all shot at night. Uh, for the most part, I love the way that the robots move slowly because it was like very like anti-Transformers in a way, mm-hmm. and it's also the best Transformers movie that's been made, especially in this decade. And I, I just, I simply just, I think there's a disconnect just because I just, I don't know, I just don't find it very rewatchable. There's a lot of tremendous sequences. I think about her running through the street and having the, uh, the uh, what's I'm gonna call it, chase after her. Yeah, uh, I thought that was really, really wonderful looking. I'm not the biggest fan of the whole. Like, Guillermo del Toro, I respect, but I just don't gravitate towards him. And I think the most Guillermo del Toro thing about that movie was sort of like the underground stuff with, like, Ron Perlman. It's kind of like... all of that. That's... I, I don't know. I'm just like... I didn't really find that that interesting to me. And uh, I wish that it was just more of the cool-ass robots uh, at that point. But uh, but regardless, I, I do respect this movie. I do think it is one of the most interesting blockbusters that was made in this uh, decade, and uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a really cool movie, but it's not, like, the most rewatchable thing. Fair. Uh, I understand where you're coming from. For me, I think you kind of hit part of the reason that I love it so much. It's just, it's such a different blockbuster than we're it used is. to seeing. It is. Um, and one of the things that I've always said about it, and it's a movie that I have seen so many times. Obviously, I have the fucking poster for this thing in the hallway. Um, I love Pacific Rim. It is, for me, what Star Wars did, but in a cooler way almost. I mean, this movie doesn't exist without Star Wars like most blockbusters don't, but the way that it does the world building similar to Star Wars, like, instead of doing the opening crawl, they have that really cool opening montage about, like, the history of the rifts and, uh, like, how all of the pan-Pacific stuff starts and, like... I love everything about it, and I know that there's a lot of flack the actors get because they talk about them being stilted and things like that, but part of the reason I kind of find all of it charming is this also feels like the most live-action anime that's ever been put on film, Right, and all of that kind of leans in on that with me, if you will. Like, There's just something about the way that the characters come off that it feels anime-esque, and like going into into it with that mindset it makes it more fun so i can get behind those ideas and i love the design of the movie to your point the stuff with ron perlman you may not love that but to me that's just part of the world building that i like so much uh, I, I agree yeah charlie day and as like it's, this it's the scientist ca- it's the canto bite of this movie sure and then you have charlie day who's a scientist who's more obsessed with the monsters than he should be. Yeah. And, like, I love everything about that. It's just a movie that every time I watch it, I'm blown away by the scale. I'm blown away by the design. I'm blown away by... The score is excellent. It's like a rock score for a a movie that you wouldn't expect it to have one, and yet it's badass and cool. Everything about it just pops off. And, again, as someone who likes big monster movies, like, this is my bread and butter right here, man. Like, I love shit like this. This is the kind of thing I kind of wish that it the second one had actually been good and performed because I would have loved to see Pacific Rim versus like Godzilla. Right. You know, something along those lines. That's like the dream. But the fact that this movie works on any level and like an audience actually showed up for it, that speaks volumes to me. Again, WB showing that sometimes they like to take risks on stuff. Yeah. And I, I fucking love this movie. I, I do think this is the best out of like the kaiju monster movies 
Uh, I think this one's the best, even though they're not related by franchise necessarily. Uh, I think this is best. This is probably my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie of the decade, without a doubt. Um, I need to rewatch it. Also, Stacker Pentecost, one of the coolest fucking character Dude, names ever. Yeah, and Elba's fucking great in it, too. Is Charlie Hunnam a good actor? I mean, take or leave it, I guess. I mean, I didn't really watch... He was on Sons, right? Yeah. I didn't watch Sons, so I don't have a lot of... I don't have a lot of he he gets attention from him. I, I don't think he's the. I don't think he's like an amazing actor. Like a like a. I don't know. He's definitely not a Christian Bale or anything. People give him so much shit, and I've never understood it. Really, I he, mean, he's I, never. I don't ta- disagree with. He's you. never taken off. I mean, I actually don't even think he's nearly as bad in this movie as people make him out to be. Though I I, I agree. Like I mean, I I, th- I just find a lot of the criticisms lobbied at this film unwarranted. He's kind of like. It's weird how he gets so much shit for maybe playing this type of, having this persona and this type of thing, but will praise Keanu Reeves as if as if he's not a good, as if he's not a bad actor. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, you know what I mean? It's just bizarre to me. I I don't think he's nearly as bad as people make him out to be. But that's just me. Yeah. Uh, moving into our thirty-eight. This is a film that. I didn't necessarily think we needed when it was announced just because we've had so many versions of this story already on screen, but they decided to do it, and I'm glad they did because not only is it one of the most interesting films of the decade, it also really popped off as why Bradley Cooper is a really great filmmaker, and that is A Star is Born. He and Lady Gaga are so excellent in this movie. This ended up becoming my favorite version of the story. Um, I've seen most of them. I think I never saw the one with Barbara Streisand. But it really is a really great take on the idea of someone discovering someone very talented and giving them a shot. But it always ending in tragedy in the way that these films tend to do. Uh, Beautifully shot. Great music. Everything about it just stands out to me. It's just a really excellent film. Yeah. Um, I, I can't say more. Oh, and Dave Chappelle. Holy shit, he's really good in this. So, yeah. Yeah. This movie has a lot of, oh my God, you did that qualities to it. Totally. Bradley Cooper is one of my favorite actors. So seeing him direct just an absolute hit was awesome to me. I was... Very taken aback by this. Uh, Lady Gaga also showing up. I'd seen her do a couple of things. Uh, American Horror Story, even though I'm not a fan of that show. I saw her in that and I uh, thought she was fine. But she obviously showed up and was absolutely essential to this movie because I think she made the music better. It's crazy that Bradley Cooper sort of like taught himself to do all this as well. Uh, pretty, pretty damn fucking impressive. The fact that he was able to act his ass off. And people give him shit for... The way he talks, like that's something that like Jay never understood. It was why he sounded the way he sounds, and I think it's just interesting that he, it's part of the character that he's trying to do like a Sam Elliott impression because Sam Elliott is his brother. And uh, I don't know. I was uh, very, very, very charmed by this movie. I think the music's uh, great, and it's very. I I had never seen any of the other movies, so I I didn't really care that it was a. that it was the fourth rendition of this. And uh, I was just there to see it because uh, my boy had made it. And uh, I'm so glad, even though I, I went to go see it and I was by myself, I cried my ass off 
and uh, it was a hell of a time. And, yeah, man. Uh, it's also just crazy to talk about, like, even though it was just a good movie for us and we appreciated it and enjoyed it, it's also worth noting how huge of a movie it was. I mean, it, it just just took off. It was crazy how successful it was. And the fact that it got so overlooked come Academy time was so surprising to me. Yeah. Just because it was so beloved when it had opened, but, you know, right. I digress. Uh, number 37 is a movie that we just recently talked about on our uh, Best of 2019 list, and it is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Because we love Ryan Johnson. I'm dying to rewatch this. Me too. I actually almost went to see it in theaters again just because I want to see it again so oh, really? badly. Yeah. I, I kind of like, I, I don't have much more to to add. I wish that it was nominated for more uh, at the Academy Awards. Me too. But, um,. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot more to add th- from the conversation that we had previously other than uh, I'm dying to see it again. I can't wait to see this cast together. Yep. We we now know that Ryan Johnson is working on a Benoit Blanc sequel, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting to me. Uh, I want to see how that holds up because I, I like that character, but I, I think that... <sighs> I just love the idea of him being in such different environments every time they do it. That, that's true. I, I think... I I think what really makes or breaks a Benoit Blanc sequel is his his supporting cast because I think he is a piece of a greater whole and not necessarily the standout to me. So that's just my personal takeaway, but that does not mean that I don't love Knives Out. No, I and I I totally agree with your sentiments. Um, I don't have a lot to add either, just because again, this is a film that we talked about to death already. Um, I just really really love it. It absolutely deserves a. Sp- base in this like i think it's brilliantly written it's brilliantly acted it's brilliantly directed like it's just a great movie 100 percent. our number 36 is a film that has stayed with me since the night it opened and it is a film by joe carnahan starring liam neeson called the gray the a-team yeah i wish dude the a-team is good shit but the gray is one of the great survival thrillers i think maybe ever uh, great cast led by Liam Neeson, and it really, it really is a fitting film to be on here, knowing you and I and how we feel about stuff like this. It just it speaks to me on a very primal level, I think, as it should. And this idea of how far will you go to try to survive uh, after a plane crash? It's just so interesting. Uh, Frank Grillo is really great in this too. It, it's just a movie that. I've loved since it's opened. I'm glad that we got it on the list, especially so high. Yeah. So this is one of those like personal victories. This is this is my Pacific Rim, yeah. if you will. Um, this movie I was just blown away by. So I'll never forget its opening weekend. It probably I think it came out about this time. It was like January, February. It was one of the first big weekend big weekends, quote unquote, uh, that had come out uh, that year. And it was this and Man on a Ledge with Sam Worthington. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> yeah, I do. And my friend's group was debating back and forth which one they wanted to go see, and ultimately we saw Man on a Ledge, unfortunately. I did not know what the gray would be, but I eventually watched it. I think I was working at Blockbuster Time. I watched it, and I was deeply moved by this. And uh, just to spoil the list, uh, The Revenant is not on here. So first of all, I just think The Gray is a a better film than than The Revenant. Uh, I also think it is Joe Carnahan's best movie, and which is I, I love Joe Carnahan, 
but he is like he doesn't have a high batting average personally uh, especially now that he's producing a little bit more i have not been the biggest fan of the movies that have come out since uh he started the war party uh, wheelman is cool to watch but it's really not that lasting of a movie el chicano i have not seen but uh i i, I wanted to see wasn't really feeling it after all the reviews and uh i just couldn't even finish point blank i was not a fan of that movie but the Gray, I think, is easily his best best film. And when I was learning how to uh, write for the screen, I read a lot of scripts, but scripts for movies that I had not seen. And The Gray is still, to this day, the only movie script that I read of a movie that I'd seen. And I guess really... I guess all I'm saying with that, the point that I'm making is that it was hard for me at the time to read scripts of movies I had seen because I was just, like, picturing the movie right. and not reading the script, if that makes sense. So... Like it, it kind of like helped me read. If I had already seen the movie, it helped me read the script just because I knew it. Uh, but it, I think it's just a testament that that was the only one that I think I could finish, just because I was so deeply moved by how I, how it was reading to me. Yeah, totally. Um, I th- I just think visually it's amazing. I love the look. It kind of it kind of reminds me a little bit of what we talked about with Attack the Block. How they pulled off some of the creature effects, hiding. The fact that it was CGI and the wolves, I think, actually looks really, really damn good. Uh, there's a couple, I think, pr- uh, practical shots of the wolves in there, but for the most part, they were all CGI and hidden in various ways, whether it's through the snow or just at night. And uh, I thought that that worked. It's also just a pretty cool uh, cast of characters like Dermot Maroney mm-hmm. and Grillo, of course, and James Badgedale. But uh, I think ultimately it's uh, my favorite Liam Neeson movie since he's uh, had this sort of renaissance or whatever. And uh, I don't know. I just love everything about it. I find it deeply moving. I love the way that it's shot. And uh, yeah, The Gray. If you have not seen it, it's maybe one of the most underrated movies in our top 50. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a smaller niche film, definitely, kind of like you just said. But if you've got to see it. Uh, if anything, for Liam Neeson in uh, his performance. And also, I think that the direction that Carnahan gives him is like yeah. fucking excellent. It's excellent. And also, just worth noting that, like, it's Conahan's best movie, get, even given, like, the conditions that he had to film it in. Like, it's just crazy how he showed up for this. Yeah. Where's I my That is your 35. Number 35 is, again, kind of going back to the conversation we had about Mission Impossible and The Raid. This is another movie that we felt like deserved to be on the list, even though it is a part of a franchise that's represented elsewhere. And even on this very episode of the podcast, this is Matt Reeves' War for the Planet of the Apes. Thank God that we got these on here. And I think it speaks to Matt Reeves as a filmmaker. It's part of the reason I'm so excited about Batman. He took this franchise in two very different directions, under his watch, uh, the first one being more of like kind of a survival thriller in a way, and then this one is like a straight up war prison film. And I love again Andy Serkis at the lead of all this is Caesar, and Woody Harrelson as the general of the humans, and like them trying to eradicate the apes as this new disease starts to spread that is like legitimately killing off the human race. There's something about it that is just so striking, and it really feels like the Great Escape mixed with, you know, uh, I would guess the bridge on the River Kwai and things like that. Like, it's very retro feeling, yeah, but with apes, and there's just something so 
interesting about it, the way it draws you in, the way that I feel watching the movie, and you're like really hoping that Caesar and his clan will get through this, and like that whole relationship he has with the human child, uh, it's just so very interesting to me. And this movie has continued to play wonderfully on Ruby Watches. It is crazy to me that this is a sequel to Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I know. It's nuts that they belong to the same trilogy. I know. It's crazy how far the series came. Um, I don't have a whole lot to add, other than I think that this movie is an absolute masterpiece. Shout out to Steve Zahn for <laughs> playing Bad Ape, Bad Ape which I, I met him briefly right before he got this bar in my hometown. Um, I, I just think that Andy Serkis and Woody Harrelson playing off of each other, it's just... It's something that we, if it was any other movie other than a movie with you know cartoon apes in it, it would just be absolute. Totally, I would have a love affair. Everybody else would have an absolute love affair uh, with this whole thing, but um, I, I just think it is a massive success. It builds off of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes so beautifully, and it's just uh, the epic that I think we deserved from. Star Wars. Uh, it's like it's one of the most underrated franchise finales, maybe in the entire decade. Which I think is probably why we felt compelled to put it a little bit higher than Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Only what uh, eighteen spots different? Did yeah. I do that math right? Something like that. I mean, it does speak to the fact that they finished it off on such a high note. Like it could have not gone that way, and yet it did. And I really really am glad that it did because it's just so fucking good man yeah like everything about it it just what a what a fitting finale in mm-hmm. the end absolutely um, that and that's really more than anything is the praise it deserves and it's just it's weird how mm, i just feel like this is this sort of betrays everything that we know about blockbuster filmmaking it's like the idea of bringing planet of the apes back it's like is is now really the time to do this and then the first one kind of showed up and was like oh we're actually pretty interested in this and the fact that we were able to give ourselves to this franchise and it for it to last like it kind of like has no business being in the 2010s it just doesn't no it totally doesn't. especially when you kind of seen how terminator and alien and predator and all those things have really just kind of died off um, this, this is even, uh, originates even older than that. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy that it, it's had the life that it has. And I just, it's just an absolute testament to the quality of the film and, uh, the changes that the studio took and the technology that, well, that benefits it. I mean, it's crazy. And I mean, the fact that of all the properties right now that Disney Fox, the first thing that we heard out the gate that they were working on was another yeah. Apes film, good. I think speaks volumes to the property, doesn't it? Like absolutely, and where it's come and where it's going, and I think that's awesome. Uh, our last film today for this part of the list is our number thirty-four. It is a film that I love very, very, very much. And again, talk about sports films. You and I certainly love those, <laughs> but more than sports films, I'm a big fan of Aaron Sorkin. Yep. That dude can write anything, and that movie is Moneyball, starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Uh, what a great, great movie that I was not really expecting or anticipating. I remember it was coming out. I think this was not long after Rise of the Planet of the Apes, right around that time that it came out. Mm, yeah, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so right around that same time. It was one of the early movies I saw moving to Southern California. 
Um, Sorkin writing a baseball film sounded very interesting, but it's like a baseball film that's not really fully a baseball film. Right. It's about all the back doors to it all, and I think that's what made it the most interesting is it was a thing that we didn't normally see, and for this movie to be as good as it is, for it to really remind us just how great Brad Pitt can be, to see how great Jonah Hill can be, to be to see Chris Pratt actually be yeah. good, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman is excellent in this. So great cast, great writing. It showed us so much about baseball in a mathematical way that I had never really thought about. Yeah. And this whole real life story is just so fascinating. This was something that I wasn't privy to. This whole story, this whole idea. I didn't know anything about it in in real life. And I knew that something had happened with the Oakland A's and it was being adapted, right? So right. I saw the movie, kind of had no understanding whatsoever. And it's it's one of my favorite like educational movies, kind of what uh, The Big Short kind of built off of, right. in my opinion. I just think uh, I like the way that it was handled and I responded to it here very much so. And I love that it has that sports uh, movie DNA in it as, as well because you still – you know, want to rally behind the team and you still have that moment at the end um, that most sports movies have. And I appreciate that, but you get to follow just a, just a couple of characters. And I really enjoyed Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill's performance. This was when like people really started taking Jonah Hill seriously. Yeah. Um, So maybe I jumped the gun and said that it was 21 jump street, but it was, uh, it was this first. And, um, I love I love the writing and the narrative of it, but I also think it's interesting that Sorkin did this weird thing for me personally. I want to know if you agree with this. He kind of I thought explained it so well in the movie that he made the MLB instead of like making Billy Bean look like an absolute genius. I feel like he made everyone else look like an absolute idiot because it's kind of like the most no shit thing right. I've ever seen in my life in sports. <laughs> I don't think you're necessarily wrong, but I think that part of that also, he does make Billy Bean look like a genius because the A's just don't have the money. And so everyone else can afford to do the stuff that they want to do, like no problem. Well, it's just like the idea of like, there, there's that scene where he's in the room and he's like just dismissing everyone at the table, yes. what they're saying, because he wants them to follow his lead. And they're looking at him like he's a crazy person. Right. But instead of like, you know, instead of a lot of movies would treat that like holding Billy Bean up on a pedestal. I, I don't feel that way at all. I think it's like to the film's testament. I think that's what makes it so unique. I, is I think everyone else at that table is an absolute fucking moron for not thinking of the Like, it's crazy. What what season of baseball was this? Did this I take couldn't place? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. It, it's still a somewhat recent yeah, season, isn't it? It is. So I it's just, just it's just when. hilarious how so much had happened in sports without considering this type of mentality cuz you can apply this mentality across all sports. Totally. Not just baseball. <laughs> no, absolutely, but I I really do love this movie. It just is absolutely wonderful to watch. I feel drawn in every single time. Uh I don't have a lot more to add to it. I just fucking love this movie and I'm really glad we got it on the list. I agree. It's a fantastic movie. That's it. Yeah, that was we it. did it. Let's read through it one more time. All right. Number 66 is The Big Sick, Kingsman The Secret Service, Eddie the Eagle, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Snowpiercer, 21 Jump Street, Everybody Wants Some, Dope, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Short Term 12, How to Train Your Dragon, Skyfall, Warrior, 
Ford v. Ferrari, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Guardians of the Galaxy, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Deathly Hollows Part 2, The Conjuring, The Last Jedi, Sicario, Mission Impossible Fallout, The Fighter, The Nice Guys, Jojo Rabbit, The Raid 2, Pacific Rim, A Star is Born, Knives Out, The Grey, War for the Planet of the Apes, and Moneyball. Today was very uh, blockbuster heavy. It was. Compared to uh, our, our last episode. I, and I think that that's a testament to some of the blockbusters of this decade. I mean, there was a lot in there that we wanted to talk about, but I also think that you see the things like Perks of Being a Wallflower in there obviously stands out. It's something like Moneyball, The Raid. Like, we, we also went some different directions, and I'm hoping that people appreciate that. We also only had one... We had a couple of comic book movies, but we only had one superhero movie. Correct. Which was Into the Spider-Verse. Which is interesting, but we still had a couple. We still had several blockbusters. So the next list is uh, not nearly as heavy on the blockbusters. There's a couple of notable ones, and I'm sure you guys can already pick out a couple just based on having lived in this decade. Uh, but other than that, yeah, that was our. I think that was definitely our most heavy blockbuster third of the list yeah and i think that it's kind of right in the middle which made the most sense like i think it's all sandwiched between a lot of really great stuff regardless i was gonna say and it's just because we believe that these blockbusters just like offered up so much more 100 it's not yeah yeah it's not like for any reason us being like oh we just like blockbusters no these are blockbusters that actually offered something to movie making That's right. or storytelling or what have you like or i would gave us one of the best franchises which is it's obviously right. a franchise heavy decade and yeah, and I mean, that's We're kind appreciative. of... The, we are, and again, that's kind of the state of Hollywood, but I think that our list speaks for itself in that it's more than just blockbusters, but I hope you guys appreciate altogether what we're doing. So this episode was shorter than last week's, but only by about five minutes. So somehow, somehow we still did a three-hour thing <laughs> here without all of the preamble at the beginning, but it's all good. And... Uh, in a weird way, even though we've sat down and done this for like almost nine hours, and that's just recording time, not counting the time it took to work on it, I feel like it. I can't believe we're already about to do the top 33. I know. It so, feels fucking wild, doesn't yeah. it? And there you go. And then the list will be out there and ready ready uh, to be criticized. This this last third is our fuck yeah list. That's right. As, as I'm going to call it from now on. It's just going to be a machine gun. Pretty much. Fucking greatness. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening yet again. That was our top uh, from 66 to 34. 33 to number one will be out. Let's see. This comes out on Saturday. I'm going to put that on on Wednesday, only on the Movie House podcast feed. If you want to follow along, remember, go to letterboxd.com slash moviehousepod. The honorable mentions list is up right now. Um, also, if you're listening to this, then the top, the bottom 33 will be out then as well. And then this list will be out on Letterboxd the day before the last episode. That's a beautiful thing, really. I like that you're doing that. We actually had someone who asked if we were going to be putting the list out while we were doing this on Twitter, and we had a couple of our Twitter followers be like, Hey, well, they talked about it on the episode. Yeah, Here's the letterbox pay, account. Pay attention, David Bell. So that Jesus thought, Christ. I thought that was a nice thing that we had a couple of people be like, Hey, moron. They talked about this. David Bell has no problem correcting my barista <laughs> skills, but he'll he'll act like I don't know how to utilize Letterbox for my movie podcast. Jesus Christ! Anyway, but thanks for listening, David Bell, or not if you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. David Bell, 
You're great. <laughs> Good for you. Fantastic. What else? How about we just leave? Well, PJ, where can they find you online? <laughs> you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PJ underscore Campbell. You can find me here weekly talking movies with Ryan Snelling on the movie house. And you can find my podcast, The PJ Campbell Show, wherever podcasts are sold. Twitter and Instagram at WhatUpSnell. I'm also talking pop culture over on Sight and Sound. That's a podcast feed, a YouTube channel, channel and a Twitch channel. So if you follow me on uh, social media, you probably see that stuff as well. Make sure you check out Sight and Sound. Start with the start with the Twitch channel. It uh it's a great way to support us. It doesn't cost anything still and all of our our uh, content is dispersed from Twitch onto YouTube and then eventually becomes podcast things like that. So anyway, start there. It'd really help us out. And uh, that's all. Let me know if you want some t-shirts. I'll throw up some designs, I guess, on TeePublic because that might be the easiest uh, thing for for this. But uh, thank you so much again for everybody who transitioned uh, with us from Schmozno. And we're very, excuse me, very excited to show you what we have going on in uh, 2020. I'm still working on a couple of other shows to bring to the feed, talking to a few people about making that happen. And uh, I can't wait to show you all. Until next time, bye-bye.